Saloon. The Hollywood Saloon. Bond. James Bond. I thought I could trust you. You said you weren't motivated by revenge. I'm motivated by my duty. I think you're so blinded by inconsolable rage that you don't care who you hurt. When you can't tell your friends from your enemies, it's time to go. You don't have to worry about me. It's been two years since James Bond has graced our screens with Casino Royale, and we're back again with Quantum of Solace. Your regular people are back, of course, names like Barbara Broccoli, Michael G. Wilson, written again by Neil Purvis, Robert Wade, and Paul Haggis, except this time, obviously, Paul Haggis is moving up and getting top billing here. Do you think that has anything to do with the fact that he won an Oscar? Yeah, maybe just a little. Yeah. <laughs> but this time we also have Mark Forrester joining the crowd. We've kicked Martin Campbell out. Now, I don't know if that was, uh, that's probably something he did himself, but Martin Campbell is not back. And the name Mark Forrester is going to be the perennial name when it comes to looking at this film, I think. And he's been responsible before for movies like Monster's Ball, Finding Neverland, A Stranger Than Fiction, and The Kite Runner. You've heard of him before, but not necessarily in action circles. Starring, of course, Daniel Craig, our wonderful James Bond Daniel Craig, who we obviously are quite fond of. Judy Dench is back as M again for the sixth time. Gina Caro Giannini is Mathis. Jeffrey Wright returns as Felix Leiter, of course. And then we've got a whole cast of new people who we can talk about when we get to them. But here we are, James Bond number 22. The first Bond sequel. I That's mean, right. right out the bag. You're already getting the change-up is they're going to pick up directly Mm -hmm. from where the moment of Casino Royale left off. Well, almost at the very beginning of the film. I mean, we kind of open up mid-chase right into an action scene. And, you know, I guess getting right into the film, there's something very interesting that happens. Just cut right into no opening gun barrel. I I think by this time where Casino Royale left off by him saying the line. The name's Bond. James Bond. 
we finally realize that he has now become James Bond. They held it off for the entire film. Right. And then, boom, the James Bond theme hits, and we're walking out of Casino Royale floating on air. Right. You know, we got the James Bond origin story. Anything that we might have walked in with with our arms crossed and we were unsure of, I think, was completely thrown out by the time the film was over. Um, I know I was completely won over. I mean, I've seen all the films. I kind of know them inside and out. I'm kind of in the same place as the producers. I, you know, the same predicament is is I'm I'm familiar enough with the work is I'm expecting them to go bigger and better and top what they've done before. Sure. And Casino Royale certainly met that challenge in every step of the way. Now, that said, that is a hard follow-up for mm-hmm. Quantum of Solace, hard place for Quantum of Solace to be in, to follow up Casino Royale. I mean, I almost knew in the back of my head, there's just no way All right. it was going to be as good. The history of the Bond movies told me that there was only one time where part two really kicked up for a Bond, and that was Connery in From Russia With Love. Right. Lazenby right. never got a second film. Uh, Moore's second film, The Man with the Golden Gun, is not, I don't think, a big Bond film in like how... Live and Let Die or Spy Love Me was. And Dalton got, you know, licensed to kill, which was kind of a, a disappointment, needless to say. Yeah. <laughs> we'll let uh, David Huddleston say it best for us. Sanchez! Exactly. <laughs> but then Brosnan's was, was much more of a streamlined Tomorrow Never Dies in, in terms of how it played versus Goldeneye. So here we are. It's Craig's second picture coming right off Casino Royale. And boom, we're picking up right where sort of a few moments after the, the last film ended. Right. Right in the middle of a car chase. And it's interesting. There's a music cue that David Arnold does. And it's the for opening cue of the film. And I love it. And it's just some rising strings and it's building up. And there's this shot flying over the water. And you see these flash cuts. And it's kind of different for a Bond movie. Typically, they don't use those type of visual flourishes in their editing in a Bond picture. And then it happens a second time, and the camera keeps pushing. Then it happens a third time, and the music is building and building. And I'm starting to think, wow, this is really interesting. And then, almost like a car going off the cliff, boom, I'm slam-bam right into the opening action scene. And it's a freaking mess. Yeah, all of a sudden, point on. All of a sudden, you're saying, "Hold on, hold on." I'm, did I ask to see the Bourne supremacy right now? <laughs> I mean, I thought I was here to see a Bond movie. What's what's going on? Did did Paul Greengrass sneak into my theater? I, I don't understand. Is he shaking my head, or is the film shaking so freaking hard that I feel like I want to vomit when I watch this? I mean, I don't get it. It brings up an interesting equation because, you know, you mentioned Paul Greengrass, and I say, yeah, but Paul Greengrass to me is somebody that is in absolute control of that style that he's trying to do for those films, right down to the editing of those films. However, this looked like an imitation of that kind of thing. The editing in this film is hands down the worst editing in any Bond film. (laughs) Because to me, the Bond films were always... The big spectacle example of the finest in stunts and craft and and spectacle that films had to offer. You always were the spectator enjoying it. And I know 
it's very trendy of late that it's like, well, now we're going to put you in the action. Right. We're going to take you out of the audience and we're going to bring you up on stage and we're going to throw you in the action. And now you're going to get bounced around. And it's the thrill ride. It's turning the action scene into a ride. And I'm like, I don't want to be on the ride. I want to sit in the audience and I want to watch the action scene. Stop putting me in it with your jagged quick editing and your in your flash shots and your tight in close macros. Cut, 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 cut on top of each other. It does nothing to make me appreciate the stunt work or the stunt or even Bond's skill as a driver to be able to get out of that scenario when his door gets ripped right off in the very beginning. That should be a sequence. It should be the best car chase we've seen in years. If you're going to do a Bond movie and you're going to open it up with a car chase, you don't do generic TV car chase, something that is instantly forgettable the two minutes after it's over with. Well, you got to remember, what you're seeing here is a reaction to modern cinema, obviously, to modern action films, okay? Instead, like you said, of Bond being the touchstone, they're saying, oh, no, no, we're going to do what we see everybody else doing, when you and I are screaming and crying and saying, wait a minute, Bond sets the mark. Bond is the one that sets the the high point that everyone shoots towards and says, oh, if we could only do something that cool. But instead, they're stepping back, looking at the landscape and saying, okay, we've seen Paul Greengrass do this through the Bourne films, at least two and three. We see Peter Berg shaking the shit out of everything that he puts his camera to. And so it's like, that's the trendy thing, apparently. And, I mean, in a way, it's almost like a destruction of the kind of action that we have always appreciated. It's like, yes, we love fast editing when it's rhythmic and it makes sense, and we love when our camera is locked down and we've got great moving camera shots and whatnot. And the inverse of that almost says, we're going to break all those rules, which, you know, hey, I'm cool. I, I like breaking rules, but at least make it intelligent. This almost seems like it was all, they just shot a whole bunch of crappy footage with no plan whatsoever, just cut it all together. Or if they had a main camera A that was a plan shot and camera B and C, it's like everything was camera B and C, and they threw out camera A. It's just this trash stuff back and forth. And, and so what they're doing is trying to define a new type of action because people see this, and they say, oh, my God, did you see that badass action, that opening car chase and throughout the whole film? And what happens is, is that it's been started in these other films, but when it hits on a bond, which is official, official, official to everybody, then they say, well, this kind of stuff has taken hold. It's in complete disregard of what Martin Campbell did in Casino Royale, which we loved so immaculately. It's like, look at how his camera's locked down. This action is tight. It's smooth. Just think about the entire parkour scene at the beginning of Casino Royale. It's not a big jumbled mess of camera shake. I mean, the whole time we're, we're just loving this thing. And yet here we are in a film that's supposed to be a sequel. Okay, one hand goes to the next, and we're supposed right. to be seeing one film. Am I right? Because they even went so far as to not include, like you said earlier, the gun barrel shot, which I right. thought this film deserved. It's like, okay, we did the Bond thing, we've done the origin story, and now it's time to this. But they say, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. We want to continue this origin story for a little bit longer, yeah, and not yet. Yeah, yeah. Not hold yet. on, hold on. Even though we've played <laughs> the James Bond theme, we've, and we've done the name's Bond. James Bond. 
He said that now. He's still not really Bond until he wraps everything up. Of course, the quantum is not really destroyed by the end of the film because Mr. White was never found. So Mm. it it really isn't over. You could continue this into a third film if you wanted to, but we'll get to that later. So I think what's happening is that the director and the producers here, they're actually revealing their hand for the entire movie in this first scene is, all right, this is the direction we're going, and we're disregarding not only what you saw in Casino Royale for this new Bourne style, this shake stuff, but we're going to continue that through the whole thing. So it's almost like, you know, we knew scene one. It's like, okay, (laughs) I guess this is it. They've set the style for this film and set the standard. I got to hope that this isn't the standard they've decided to, you know, that like that's it from now on. It's like, no, no, you need to follow this kind of film grammar, if you will, throughout the rest of the thing. But I think that's it's so the thing. strange because the film's a sequel in general. Right. It's expecting us to, to watch the first one and continue on in this one. And it's just, it's a completely different style. I mean, normally when you have a pilot of a television show, you might hire. Let's say J.J. Abrams comes in and directs the pilot of Lost. Well, he sets the style and tone of the show that's then imitated in episodes after that. So there's a consistency in the way that it's done. And the Bond films for many years, if you think about it, actually did this. They had their own in-house directors. I mean, John Glenn right. did a few films. Taron Chung did a few films. Louis Gilbert. A lot of Bond directors and second unit directors with Arthur Wooster and his team. I mean, it was a family-type unit. The Broccolis usually did not allow a Steven Spielberg to come from the outside and direct a Bond film. They didn't let a Quentin Tarantino come in and do it. You know, they kept it within the rule book that they had, the old Cubby Broccoli Bible of Bond. And it's like, you follow the rule book and you don't veer from the rules. And I really think it was surprising to me that the Broccoli's, for the first time, let a lot of things go to Mark Forster and his team. And giving him the latitude and freedom that they had is very surprising, considering how good they've been about the control and also about how successful Casino Royale was. Mm -hmm. All the choices they made in Casino Royale worked, and they were proven that they worked. I mean, it made a lot of money. It made a lot of Bond fans happy. It rebooted the series again. Everyone was pleased with Craig. Right. And I I think this was one of the most anticipated Bond films I had had in a long, long time. Sure. I anticipated it more than Tomorrow Never Dies. I probably hadn't felt like this until I was waiting for uh, License to Kill. Right. And I liked Casino Royale better than Living Daylight. So, sure. I mean, I was really looking forward to this. And the thing about the Bond movies is is you just usually kind of know that there's a certain formula that the family has behind it. And there's going to be certain expectations. And normally when I, when I go to a Bond film, I would expect to see one of the best car chases I'd seen in a while if it's going to open up in a car chase. Right. And it just made me think, it's like, why isn't the Bond team stepping up? I mean, I know they hired Dan Bradley as the second unit director who did the Bourne movies. And he was hired for the stunt team and did the second unit directing on a lot of that stuff. Right. But ultimately, I blame the editors who cut it all together. Because you could take that same footage. I mean, right now, I'd be happy to give all of this same raw footage to Stuart Baird and say, please, just recut Quantum of Solace. <laughs> right. Just recut it. I mean, what kills me is there are scenes in here. I mean, imagine that scene where Bond shoots the car and it flies off the cliff. Just watch the two angles mm-hmm. that they use to show the car going off. They're the most uninteresting, unexciting angles you could you could pick. 
Right. You know, I don't care if you think it's arty. It's just like it has zero impact. And at the end of the day, the car sequence is just forgettable. It doesn't make me want to hit the rewind button. It sure. just kind of makes me go, God, that was a lost opportunity. Right. Well, it's like, yeah, we saw bullets. Mm. We saw cars screeching. We're in, we're out, we're in, we're out of the car. You know, close up of the hand, close up of the face, close up of the wheel. And it's just like, it's like seeing a lot of stuff you didn't necessarily need to see for the sake of cutting. To me, it's like when you cut for the sake of cutting, like if we if we cut this quicker, if we cut this faster, it'll imply action. That's horseshit. You know, that that's not the way you I make agree. a good film. It's like you don't just cut for the sake of cutting. Check this out. Richard Pearson and Matt, I don't know if it's chess or cheese, only had five weeks to edit the entire film. Versus the normal uh, 14 weeks that you would expect to cut a film like this. You know, I don't know if that had anything to do with it. And I don't know if that's an actual real statement because that's just stuff I've, I've got from the Internet. But at the same time, you know, I could see that that's a possibility looking at this film. But, I mean, can you imagine them hammering away and hammering away for five weeks, barely sleeping, mm-hmm. cutting the shit out of this stuff? You know, there's probably more edits in this film than there has been in any Bond film. I mean, it looks like Michael Bay, you know, had his editors cut this film. What's sad is I hear Craig talk about how much he wants to take on as much stunt work as he possibly can as Bond. I suppose I just made a decision early on, rightly or wrongly, whether or not I, when, when, when I got involved was that I wanted to be as physically involved as I possibly could. Bond has always been something incredibly physical in my mind. Sean's movies were dynamic and balletic almost, the way the, sort of the, the, the violence and the action was done. And I thought, I, I want, sort of want to be involved with that. I want to be involved with that at every level. Because it's sort of, it's crucially important. It's what people go to the movie to, to watch. And here I see him. He's running and jumping around. And it doesn't even matter if it was him or not because of the editing and the choice of the camera angles. You could completely fake it. It wouldn't matter if Craig's banging up his body. The editing completely takes me out of it. And I don't even get a chance to appreciate the fact that he jumped across from here and then jumped onto a bus or whatever. Right. It's, again, it's, it kind of breaks a tradition and a code that all the Bond films had. They always allowed you to sit back and be the spectator of the stunt. Mm-hmm. Um, they were never worried about putting you in it. And if you were ever inside the stunt, it was only for a couple of seconds, either for the height of the explosion or a, a punch or a kick or your roll or a dive or something like that. But to put me again inside the action sequence for the entire action where I don't even get to enjoy it, it just gets redundant and it's repeated. You know, it's right. one after another after another. And it's really odd, the pacing of this movie, because I guess they knew they didn't have that big of an opening sequence. Because the car sequence isn't that big. When and you that compare long. that opening sequence to previous Bond films, I mean, remember remember when they they made the mistake on uh, World Is Not Enough, where they had like a small sequence, and then they realized, ah, this mm-hmm. isn't quite enough, and then they went and did that fantastic boat sequence that right. was just absolutely outstanding. Well, that's what you got here. It's like you kind of get that, but you remember they are a slave. To the fact that they are a sequel. Everything's not out in the open. If they're going to go, I basically got that this was a few minutes from the end of Casino Royale. You know, he picked up Mr. White, threw him yeah. in the trunk, and took off. You know, it's, it's obviously the same day. Okay? Well, he's I would have still much preferred for the gun barrel to come out. Okay? Do the traditional opening. The gun barrel opens up on exactly where Bond was standing at the end of Casino Royale. Mm-hmm. He looks up. Mr. White's down on the ground. And when Bond looks up, he sees about six cars driving up and about 20 men 
rushing the compound with guns, okay? He's got this badass gun in his hand. They even showed us in the trailer of him walking with it in slow motion. Yeah, we never see You want to build an opening <laughs> action sequence? Show me what a sharpshooter Bond is. Show me how Bond reacts in that scenario. He takes White, he throws him in the trunk. Boom, 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 boom. He has to sniper. He fi- finally realizes he can't get out of it, has to get in the car, and then take off. Right. You know? Right. At least then you could have gotten a little bit of rifle action in, and you would have been a direct sequel. But, yeah, it's picking up, I think, just a few moments later. Because yeah, it's, it's, it's all about the gag is you can get out now. Oh, he's been in the trunk the whole time. You know? And... They've been firing machine guns at the trunk, and, you know, (laughs) the car took some damage. I mean, okay. You you killed your boss. Uh, Way to go. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It depends on how good of a gag you think that is when he opens the trunk and you saw Mr. White in there. It was enough to where they did the freeze frame for about 15 frames to make you say, hey. You know what that is? That's like a drum, you know, after a joke. So, yeah, thanks, yeah. thanks for that freeze frame that you'll never use again the rest of the whole movie. Now, one thing I did like right before that moment is when Bond pulls in and he's driving into that kind of garage down that long tunnel. Mm-hmm. David Arnold starts doing something, and he does it like a couple of times throughout the whole score. He starts teasing the theme. Right. Just slightly. It's like it's not quite there yet. You know what? You're, you're getting there. You're getting closer, but you're not quite there yet. And he does it, you know, sporadically throughout the film. And there's a couple of notes in there I really like. I mean, to me, David Arnold is still the hero in many ways of the of the show because I really do like what he brings to the score. Well, you know what? Don't you think that was probably in the rule book? Because they finally said, look, 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 look. We're not jacking around anymore. We're going to stick with David Arnold because we know he at least honors and respects the, the, the legacy that John Barry left behind and can make a good Bond score. But I, it's like, if Mark Forrester was Mr. Burn the Fields Down and Change So Much, don't you, you know there was an argument. Some argument of him like, you know, I want Klaus Bedelt. I want Tyler well, Bates. I want someone else, the, you know, and he and they're like, the, no. The we're, big one that we haven't mentioned is is you do not fire Daniel Klein. I know, I know. Hold on, That's hold like on. That's like firing Maurice Bender. I know, hold on, hold on. Because I want to talk about something else first. I want to pull, let me pull it back to a macro real quick, okay? Let me just ask you this simple question. Why a sequel? Was this necessary? The first sequel in Bond history, is this story still open wide enough? Couldn't it begin? Okay, we, we obviously are setting up Quantum as the new Spectre. Am I right? Sure. All right. Now, if we're going to start the sound of the McClory alarm, this would be when. Is because if we're going to talk about Spectre. Right, Spectre. Yeah, right. we got to be good. careful. Anyways, so uh, Spectre is... The group, the organization that was in multiple Bond films at the beginning of uh, the Connery series, right? And obviously right. that's what the quantum, if or whatever they're called, the quantum, quantum or whatever, they're set up as that kind of thing. Couldn't it just be later on and he's still going after them and we didn't have to see this film? See, that's what I would say was that in my opinion, this is time period that we didn't have to see. This was the small little episode in the TV series that uh, wasn't really necessary. It's like, okay, oh, this, sure, at it best, it's a 14-minute opening sequence. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's, you're, it's like, you're done with it. It's like, you know? it's like you're done. This is the other day that you don't see of Jack Bauer's seven days of 24, okay? This is right. that other day where he worked for six hours and then got to go home and go to bed and, you know, have dinner or something. So it's like, that's what really this is. And so I... From moment one, 
wasn't necessarily jazzed about this thing being a sequel and set on this timeline of, okay, we're going straight up after this first film. And it just it narrows everything as to um, what your options are. Well, and they pick one of the lamest, well, one of the more overused plot devices. And we don't even like it when we've seen it in previous Bond movies. Are you ready for it? You almost need its own alarm. It needs its own alarm. When people... Bond goes rogue. rogue. He's, He's gone rogue again. Again with the rogue. You know, we've seen Bond do it. We've seen every... Oh, if everybody... Jack Bauer doesn't go rogue, I mean, that's just a staple. Okay. <laughs> He's just always that's rogue. That's how I time that show, is how he, when he starts going rogue. <laughs> but yeah, Bond rogue again. Bond being set up. Not once, uh. not twice, but a few times throughout the film. You know, to make Bond well, look look bad they're making him they're trying to kill all these people so he looks so dangerous you know and and even him it's it's like come on him do we have to see our guy fighting red tape again i mean isn't that i mean again back to 24 isn't that half of what 24 is is not only is he fighting the bad guys but he's fighting american red tape the cia or who else coming down on their own guy it's like just get out of his damn way and let him do what he does and save your ass and that's basically what we're seeing here again and it's certainly didn't take very much to flip him later on and we'll get there as we move there but i think it's like come on do we have to go this way again okay fine he goes rogue but do we have to see these efforts does he have to find his fight his own people yet again come on yeah. there's 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 more original ways to do this we'll go to the opening title sequence because we All haven't right. gone there yet opening title sequence here we are and uh boy the first time watching it i didn't know uh, it, it wasn't even an option you know what i'm saying that should have been off the table it shouldn't have been a question really does daniel Kleiman not get to uh to do what he does he came on board in goldeneye earning his stripes right off the bat and i think in the same way when david arnold came on and tomorrow never dies both of them i thought joined the bond family like maurice bender did and I mean, only if Daniel Kleinman can't do it should you even consider right. replacing him. But that's him. not the case here. That's not, that's His, not what i The heard. artistry that he brings to it. And, you know, I, I, got, I get tired of people complaining about the title sequence, Casino Royale. I happen to like it no, quite a bit I like because it a it's so different. It, but it also fits It doesn't the try plot. to be the last one that I just saw. And that's kind right. of the point of these things. Is, right. And that's the challenge is I don't think... You know, that's the problem with this new title sequence is it's exactly what I would expect out of a Bond title sequence. There's no surprises in it. It looks just like other ones I've seen before, namely like Spy Who Loved Me. There's nothing surprising right. about women you know, in silhouette. predictability. It's just, it's a generic James Bond title sequence. Right. And the songs kind of, and it kind of follows suit in some ways. I mean, I get that Jack White is trying to write like the McCartney Live and Let Die, three songs in one kind of song overall. But the piano. I mean, I've heard it now a couple of times, and, you know, doing the the back and forth with Alicia Keys is kind of interesting, I guess, having the two voices. But ultimately, it didn't do a lot for me. When I finally, I I was uninspired by it, and I was like, wow, I guess I didn't see the credit where, and and I, I guess it didn't click with me. You know, when I saw in the credit sequence when it said MK tw- title sequence well, designed that's by MK12. That's what it made me feel like. It was like, oh, okay, well, that's good. Because up until that credit came on, I was thinking, geez. I know. It's like he dropped the ball. It looks very, I think they're trying to replicate some sort of an old school Maurice Bender, 
you know, Roger Moore sequence with a lot of oh, silhouette. Oh, it had the girls. It yeah. had even Craig in it. And they yeah. used the sand instead of water. I mean, yeah, it had a lot of familiar but, things. But, you know, seeing, seeing all that outline of the earth or whatever just over and over, it's like, okay, wow, you showed us that you can draw cheap lines. And it's just it's over and over. And, uh, and you know, and then his gun, it, the gun exploding at the end looks cool, but he shoots the dirt. I mean, what is that? You know what I mean? It's like shoot the title or something. I don't know. Shoot, shoot Well, he does or, shoot the title. At the very beginning, you know, it goes and the bullet goes right, right through. I, I don't know. I just, but. I think to me... And, not that it's not done well, but you're right. It's it's not original. It's not anything different, and it's old school. And it just doesn't have the the flash and the uniqueness. That's what was so cool about Danny Kleiman stuff is that it's so unique and weird. I mean, if you remember Goldmine, yeah. it was so yeah. trippy. You know, it's like you know guns coming out of giant statues' mouths and stuff, and you're like, what the hell? But at the same time, it made it very powerful and different and interesting, and you felt like you were seeing something new and unique. And this is just an attempt to say, oh, whatever. I think the thing that disappoints me the most is the fact that the crown was passed from uh, Maurice Bender to Daniel Kleinman, and that was it. It was like, you know, that's canon. And yet... Here we have Mark Forster coming along, and, and he's this hotshot director, apparently, and he wants to use his effects people. The effects in Stranger Than Fiction are fantastic, okay? But that's different than doing a Bond opening sequence, which is very important in the elements. I think we've said that in previous Bond shows, is that you know when you line up the elements of what is what the rule book is, you know, that, you, that yeah. you're supposed to play by. The opening action sequence... The, sequ- the title sequence and the song are three things I look forward to in every new Bond right. installment. Exactly. You know, I don't want to hear the song beforehand. I want to hear it when I go see the movie that night. Mm-hmm. And I want to be surprised by the opening action sequence. To me, I think it's a disappointment that Forster was allowed to switch his people for what was set up and what was, you know, old school Bond. Danny Kleiman had been there. He knew the ropes. He knew what to do. That's his gig. That's his job. Someone stepped in and took his job. And and uh, I certainly just think that's just weak. And uh, had they done something that had kicked its ass, that'd be a different story. But I have a hard time believing that there wouldn't have been a much better sequence um, done by mm. Kleiman over these other well, guys. It just seemed like MK2 just looked at a bunch of old Bond sequences for inspiration and then right. made one. Right. Whereas I think Daniel Kleinman did that back in 1994 or 95 and then walked away from Maurice Bender and stepped up and started doing his own thing. He already had the inspiration, but he wasn't worried about imitating. Sure. He was he was drawing from that inspiration and trying to take it to the next stage is is kind of what well, I but thought. What he did, but what he did was so fantastic that it has even rivaled what Bender was doing. Now Bender had a lot less kick ass tools, obviously, but at the same oh, time, Kleinman yeah. had really set the stage and had done such incredible work that you know it's like a little mini masterpiece and you're just waiting you know it's like oh that's the thing you know one of the things that's so exciting is, is what is he going to do mm-hmm. with this and then when we get this milk toast vanilla plain rehash of old school bond it's just like come on you know uh, take us somewhere new i was also i wasn't wild about all the different fonts every time they went to a different city or country oh. they would change the font on yeah. screen 
and often they weren't on screen long enough it'd be like it would be hard to read at first right, and just I right. kind of found it distracting and then they tried to do playful fonts where they have it in perspective on the ground and then a car will drive over it and it like wipes London. it off the screen yeah. you know I've never seen that done in a Bond movie either already they're doing new elements and new thingings right. that uh, the old Bond films always had a traditional you know they would either put the title right there in the corner or or not at all, but I mean, you, you always knew where you were. So that was kind of strange. See, I wonder if it wasn't necessary. Like, after they were done with it, they're like, oh my God, we don't know where we are. We are jumping to so many locations and so many things. Are we in Bolivia? Are we, where are we? You know, it could be that it's just, it was a mandatory thing where they well, said. Well, even Casino Real throws the titles down the corner, so that's okay. I mean, yeah. there's nothing wrong with doing that. It just. Putting it in a funky, arty font and making it, changing it up every single time around and then trying to be playful with it and all that. It's like, that's all great, but do we need it in a Bond movie? And that's going to kind of be a recurring theme in all of this. It's, they're all interesting, creative ideas, but they're not really needed in a Bond movie. That's just kind of a distraction mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. many ways, I find. Um, especially when you have such a weak plot to begin with. Uh, that's what you should have been concentrating more on, I think, instead of, you know, <laughs> fancy little fonts and, and things of that kind of nature. But, you know, we can continue to, to beat up the, the plot as we move along. But I, I do find it curious that right after the opening car chase and then the title sequence, we literally only get a small breather before we're, boom, right back into another chase. <laughs> well, much less that, it's like we've got to do this pretentious, I don't understand it, cross-cutting between this horse race. That never really first comes time to I've ever seen that in a Bond movie. The first mistake they made, and fuck, if I hadn't seen the film three times and I still can't follow it, is it <laughs> looks like M gets shot. It does. It really does. It completely looks like she gets shot in that sequence. Mm-hmm. And every time I look at it, it's still it's just bad angles and bad cutting. It's just like ah. Oh. What a mess. And then it's like you said, okay, now we're going to set up and cross-cut between a horse race and a bond chase. And, again, it's like taking your eye off the ball. It's almost as, as if giving up and saying, well, I can't make this bond foot chase interesting. I have no idea how to do it. But I can cross-cut with this horse chase and add editing juice to it. And that will make it but somehow you know, more traditionally, interesting. Traditionally in a cross-cutting sequence though you the two subject of your cross cuts eventually meet you know you would want your threads to come together i mean we talk about our master right. our mentor our sensei sam peckinpah right who would have laughed he would have unzipped his pants i'm sorry <laughs> whipped it out and pissed all over that sequence <laughs> just like he did when he looked at that out of focus material of pat garrett and the billy the kid i'm telling you <laughs> He would have just looked at that and go, you guys just don't know what you're doing at all. And I think also if you're going to adopt that technique, if you're going to adopt a cross-cutting technique, that immediately tells me that you want me to be objective, a.k.a. the viewer of it. Right. Which means don't adopt the shaky cam and try and throw me into the action and cross-cut and make me a spectator because now you're just confusing me right. all over. You're trying to throw me in the race and in the chase, and you're taking me back and forth. I can't appreciate the editorial choices you're making because they're blurred because I'm too lost inside the quick cutting of the action. Right. That's the thing. Is it, it, just, it just seems so absurd to me to go, horse race, 
and then back to the conversation. Then horse race. It was before the action even kicked in. It You're was like right. The yeah, setting up like the they horse. were trying to build up to it, and it was strange yeah. editing. You know, and then and then once the race was off, then it was you know horse race, and then back to the chase. And I'm like, okay, is there some sort of underlying statement here that Forrester's trying to make about? Oh yeah, the these, horse rider falls, Bond stumbles. Yeah. Well, it's like these these uh, agents are like stallions. They're like. Racing horses, you know, they're, they're, you know, it's like, is there, are we saying that ridiculousness? It's like, I don't think so. And again, you know, you, you would expect it's like, okay, eventually are they going to meet and, and he's going to jump on a horse? Maybe this is a little too Roger Moore comical, but you know, it's like they're in the race, you know what I mean, or something. And, 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 Somehow they're in the middle of that race and they're both on horses. I don't know, but at least the, the cross cutting would come to fruition because later on, once they finally get to the to the foot chase full on, they just abandon the the horse race because they've gone past it and there's no cross cutting. Well, that I leads mean, me to believe that's not an idea that was scripted back and forth, back and forth. It's an editing choice. Sure. Again, it's trying to add what they think is flair. What they think is, right. is is being arty and and making a chase more than it is, and this sin will be committed again when we get to the opera scene. Absolutely, later on. but again, I just think it's it's inept editing that they don't understand the core idea of what they're doing. Right. What is the purpose of the scene? Bond is chasing another agent. Everything else is superfluous. I'm sorry, that's what the point of the scene is. I think Tony Scott did it better in Beverly Hills Cop too. I mean, think about it. It's like breaking at the horse race track. I mean, you know, right. the action and they're pouring in through the into the bank robbery and then they cut to the horses. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, sorry. And he is building energy in his scene through that. It never even rises up to that. And, that, and you know, we definitely don't look at Beverly Hills Cop 2 with any kind of grand vision. I mean, come oh, on. No, no. So it's sad that Tony Scott, even in his early days of making pop, pop, pop movies is doing something stronger than uh, this fool is doing. Like you said, adding flair for the sake of adding flair. I mean, I just think a competent action editor could look at this scene and go, your priorities are all wrong. You're just going for the punch. That's what they're doing. They're they're anti-editing, if you will. You know what I mean? They're forcing this perspective of what is action into this scene and any instincts they had they said no no flip that you know let's 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 yeah. let's go this other way you know we're going against type here it's so like we just that. set up a bunch of camera angles to figure it all out later in the editing it's not this shot is going to cut to that shot and that shot's going to cut to this shot mm-hmm. and that is what made the john mctiernan the james cameron the george miller the steven spielbergs it's what made all of those guys and martin campbell that i'll include in that list right. it's what what made their action scenes so damn good is they understood they even it's like a little micro set of rules that you could follow but at least that would be the key line you could follow the action right instead of this retarded mess yeah exactly and i don't know i just the whole sequence i mean it's like if you notice, it's like Bond is basically falling to his death, and the rope just catches him at the very end. You know, it's like this dumb luck. And then we're playing this silly game of who's going to get to the gun first, and it's not. there's not a lot of skill involved. Zero suspense in a scene like that at all. Yeah. Back up just a just a few a few seconds, and you get that that big money shot that they highlighted so much in the trailer for a long time, uh, the falling through the window. Which actually, when I see it, I kind of like. I think it's pretty damn cool. 
but it's like it's the only shot that has any kind of length. It's like it's like because it's the money shot and the camera is falling with them, it doesn't help to cut away from that shot. So it's like, oh, well, if we're going to take the trouble to make the camera fall here and move with them, at the very least, we have to stay on the shot. You know what I mean? It's like it's right. the one long shot in the sequence. And it's like, wow. It's like, oh, I see. So if you've got a shot that you're planning for because it's a money shot, because it's a shot you can put in the trailer, oh, you'll stick on that shot. But everything else... Then like, it can be on screen for longer than two seconds. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but everything else... Well, because the the length that the camera falls with them is what's so impressive about the shot, right? Yeah, you know, and right. I don't, and yes. I don't, and I don't know how much of that was CG or what. I don't know how real that shot is. I couldn't tell. To me, it looked perfectly real, like the camera was falling right behind him, and it's quite. I think impressive. it's both. It, it's a combination of a real, and then they have to CGI other elements out and, and that kind of thing. Right, but I, I, it's an impressive shot. But again, it's the only one that they planned for because it was juice, you know, and everything else is. So, yeah. you know, and it's just at this point, we're two, we're two action sequences in really fast. And I'm already like, you know, head slapping at this point going, oh, is this is what they've got planned for us the whole movie? And not only that, this is supposed to be what is, you know, pointing back toward Casino Royale. Because it's like, remember, the big blowout at the beginning of Casino Royale is a foot chase. So we've got another mm-hmm. foot chase in a different atmosphere, a different environment here. And it's it's like, you know, it's like a peanut compared to an elephant. You know, it just it, it, in no way has any kind of scope or size to it. Now, I don't know that they wanted to necessarily go that big and that massive with it. But at the same time, uh, it's not exciting. I mean, yeah. imagine that one shot in Mission Impossible 3 where Tom Cruise is running along those tops and it's one long camera shot. You know what I'm talking about? And he's picking up speed and he's running along and it's like at least a, you know, a good 45-second long shot or whatnot. But you get a sense because you can tell it's Cruise. You can tell he's doing the jumping and running. Right. And it's kind of exciting. You know, there was a lot of opportunities to do that kind of thing when you have Daniel Craig doing his own kind of stunts. But again, when when the emphasis is on cut, 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 it really just doesn't matter. It's just throwing it into a disarray, and it's almost about we got to get through this sequence as quickly as possible. Right. <laughs> it seems to me. Yeah. Um, let's just blow through it to get right through the next one. I mean, the fact that Mark Forster felt like Casino Royale was too long says a lot, that he wanted to make a quicker, faster, leaner, <laughs> meaner you know, Bond. And I told you this earlier, is that Casino Royale is the longest James Bond movie. But did you know that Quantum of Solace is the shortest? I did know that going into yeah. it. You know, <laughs> right away, that was like a big, what? Yeah. You can't even make a two-hour movie out of a Bond? Yeah. I mean, I, I know certain Bond movies have extra padding in it, to be sure. I mean, they used to always be a little bit of hair over two hours. Right. Be, uh, but I felt like this movie easily could have used another 20 minutes. Of, of a lot of character development. I mean, characters are going to start coming and going that easily could have used some of that extra screen time to help buff them up that normally would have been there for each of the characters. Because, you know, we're about to, you know, I guess enter in the uh, our main female character of Camille. Right. But first we've got to get to her, which is going to be Bond on a dumb luck mission. The whole movie is based on the coincidence that a $20 bill 
matches some numbers in some hotel that the you know the magic board at MI6 now can scan and tell where they are, and Bond can go to this hotel and start really <laughs> off the entire mission. Is the chance luck that he goes into the hotel room, gets in a fight with that guy, grabs his keys, and is able to get a briefcase? Now hold that on, guy. now hold on. Did did the computer scene come before this or after? I think it came before this. It did. Right. No, we go we go we go directly from the foot chase to the the uh, the guy who betrayed M in his his apartment. We realize right. M was right. not shot. Okay, she's right. okay. What the hell is this organization bond? How can they be everywhere and we know nothing about them? Then we go to MI6 and we got the the twenty dollar right, bill hang tracing. On. Now, I want to talk about that sequence real quick. Okay, how much did it cost MI6 to go paperless? Okay, because it seems absurd to me. You know what I mean? Don't you think it's a little overkill on the special effects? I mean, that looked like Star Trek. It's like we have been so non-tech in this iteration of James Bond so far. Casino Royale. That's what makes it a strange decision because in the old days, it would be right at home because Bond was always more high-tech right. than anything you'd Absolutely. ever seen. Because of the direction they went with Casino Royale and trying to root it. Hell, we don't even have Q branch yet. In this series, it really was a big jump off a of, wow, look at all these new displays. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like it was it was amazing, but it was all pointless. I mean, couldn't when he hands him that paper and it's all on the screen and I'm thinking I'm thinking, wow, couldn't he have just handed her a paper? I mean, how much did it cost in, in tech? Millions of dollars did it take to develop that kind of equipment so that he can just push the piece of paper across and she can hold it. Now, we know that that's all bullshit special effects, but at the same time, it just doesn't seem to take place. Place. I understand that MI6 is high tech, you know, or it will become so as it's slowly revealed. But it's like, wham, we get pile drive with it against the, you know, how it's been previously with all Daniel Craig iterations of this into a world of Pierce Brosnan invisible car shit. Yeah. I mean, that, that's where I expected to see this. They I mean, spent more time on that than they did on the plot of the movie. That's for sure. And, and it's fantastic looking. I would expect them to have the whatever the modern equipment is of the day. Well, that's fine, to but that, sure. that's I mean, not the modern equipment of the day. I mean, I've seen some of that stuff on on, on cable news networks and whatnot, um, but uh, that was a, that was over the top. I mean, it's just – and again, it's not that I don't like that. I think that it's cool and that it wouldn't be necessary for their kind of work. It just seems like a giant a sticking out point from the rest of the whole film that's supposed to be so down low and dirty and, and anti-tech and there's no cue and everything. And what's with all the get Bond? Where's Bond? Get Bond. I've got Bond. It's Bond. Get Bond. Bond. They don't ever call him 007. What's that all about? Yeah, Old that's true. M always called him 007. 007. Yeah. It's always I 007, know. but they don't use that in the film. It's always Bond. Bond. Get Bond. Get Bond. Bond. We also noticed this whole mom thing. You know, hello, mom. Yeah, that, that, I picked that up. Too. You know, yeah. and it, it was okay maybe once. I'm going to check the perimeter, mom. Excuse me, mom. That's true, mom. Mom, mom. But they did it like six times. And I was like, well, that's like, how he did it in Casino Royale at that elevator when he was leaving her apartment. Right. And it was great. It was just sure. great. And it was, I think, the only one I remember. Right, but it was overkill in this. It's like every lowly craft service guy was calling her mom. Mom, 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 mom. You know, and it's just like, come on, you know, it's. <laughs> So anyways, I'm sorry to take you back off where you're going. You were talking about the accidental the accidental plot of this film. Exactly. Go ahead. It's just going to fold itself into blind luck. Bond will luck into 
everything that happens because he'll confront the guy in the hotel. They'll get into a fight. Mm -hmm. I think it's an interesting running gag that Bond keeps having to kill people that have possible <laughs> information. Right. Damn it, he killed him. That, that's okay. That's good. And you completely see Bond's side of it. If he didn't kill the guy, the guy would kill him. I, mean, I, I like that. I, again, I like that fight, little fight scene. Um, but it was definitely reminiscent, again, of, of Bourne. You know, the Bourne fights right. that he had in the house. It was, like, extremely reminiscent of that. I, I loved his acting when he, you know, the guy's finally laying on the ground and he kind of looks away. You can tell he has no... Oh, yeah. You can tell he has yeah. no pleasure in killing this guy. You know, it's not now, I'll like... I'll preface this entire show right now. Any problems I have with this movie have nothing to do with Daniel Craig. Right. Or his performance as Bond. I think, like Pierce Brosnan... He is playing the material that he's been given. Right. And I think, you know, he's playing it a lot better than I think the material even allows or that's there to play. Right. But he's finding his, his nuance and his moments, you know, where they are. And, yeah, that is a nice little one. And then, you know, it's just real simple. He wipes the blood off. He grabs the guy's keys, goes down to the lobby, and then he just he tries a long shot. Is there any messages for me? No, but that package is there, or the yeah. briefcase, and that's he gets convenient. that. Walks outdoors, and then who pulls up but Camille, yeah. right? Get in. What? Get in. Camille. Or is it Melina from For Your Eyes Only? I'm confused. <laughs> it's a woman who wants revenge because her parents were killed by some guy. Convenient. Ripoff. Yeah. Come <laughs> on. Reach deeper, Paul Haggis. Aren't you the great Academy Award winning director of Crash? <laughs> so we get Camille. Yeah. Get in. That's all I remember from her. That's all like she ever said. Get in. Get in. Get in. Get in. I said get in. Yeah. <laughs> Come with me if you want to live. Yeah. And so, you know, he goes and introduces her, and then it looks like Bond's character, or the guy that he killed, was supposed to kill her. And we kind of get the some background with her introduction into the main villain. And this is where the Bond film does something really interesting is it doesn't really set up its main villain very well. I don't think at mm -hmm. all. Traditionally, you kind of want to show how, you know, what a bastard or how evil your main villain is. And they do it very subtly in this film. I mean, there's just that floating body in the water, right? right, right. <laughs> of the former geologist, which is kind of stupid, really. It just There's a body in the, in the water there. That's how you're going to dispose of it? No, come on. <laughs> a modern person's going to have it all chopped up and, and dealt with, right? In bags, yeah. Yeah, well, but then just, again, this is Bolivia, right? And this is the head of Bolivia, so the, 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 it's, it's all... It's cheap... TV movie cutaway at best, not for a Bond movie. Okay, yeah. I would expect a little bit more. Yeah, That's saw it in all. saw it on streets in San Francisco, nineteen seventies. Yeah, yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. So, and I think the actor they got to play um, Dominic Green is a good choice. Sure. You know, he's kind of a smaller guy, but again, I need that scene that shows what a ruthless bastard he is, more so than just him giving Camille over to the general and saying, throwing her overboard when you're done with her. Right. Which is an evil bastard line, to be sure, but I just, I didn't feel like he was quite set up enough. Well, you know, what's interesting is that really, he's a very normal guy, other than he's a little mousy. You know what I mean? With mm -hmm. kind of big eyes. But beyond that, he... uh he really doesn't have anything special. Like if you remember, Le Chiffre had, you know, the eye and everything. And it's like there's mm -hmm. always that thing that makes a Bond villain kind of twisted, you know, that, that one little 
thing, and and then he'll have a, 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 a henchman that's even more colorful than him. But of course, you know, there's... Now, wait a second. got to throw in, is this our gay Bond henchman? How kind of you, Mr. Kid. <laughs> this guy, to me, is so invisible that I have a hard time even placing the term henchman on him because he doesn't oh, do anything. We never see a fight. We never see why he's tough. We just The only thing I remember from him is, like you said, he makes googly eyes at some other dude in an opera house. It's like, why? Right. what is that about? Why did you even have to make that happen? And it's like... You know, it's interesting because here, here again, we're playing against type. We love our flamboyant Bond bad guys and their very colorful henchmen. And here they're saying, oh, no, 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 no. You're, you're, that's old school, you, you old Bond guys. Come on. Let's be a little more modern and let's make this guy be a very plain, regular guy, except he's just an evil businessman, you know, mm-hmm. and – uh uh, and his henchman is even going to be more of a wuss, you know. I mean, I I, I think the movie is henchmanless, if you will. There is oh, no yeah. henchman. Yeah. I, I wouldn't. And if someone wants to call that guy a henchman, well, I would. I think they're wrong, because I would just say well, there is no henchman. He's just the closest equivalent. He's the number one to the villain, so he fits that kind of role that we expect. But you're right. Right. The film doesn't follow up on it at all. Even yeah. Fields just trips him, and I mean that's all we see. You know, it's like you know she just whips his ass right there with her foot. And, I mean, it's like, wow, well, you've proven yourself to be a great henchman. I'm so yeah. sorry. So, you know, we get into, what, a double pack of action scenes. We get Bond on a motorcycle, jumping over some boats. He hops into a boat, goes to try and rescue Camille, who doesn't want to get rescued, but, right. you know, he ends up with her. And then we get into this just messy, I guess it's a boat chase of some sort, but... I felt it was kind of unmemorable. The only memorable part of that boat chase was the very end, the calm after the storm where he's just sort of driving off and there's a musical cue there. Right. And I don't know. It's just there's a moment in there and there's the, the Craig intensity that I like. And I like that moment better than anything I really saw in the chase, which, yeah. just, again, it wasn't very memorable. The chase me. was so – well, the thing that, that just made me laugh about the chase is the fact that he hopped into – this rickety old wooden thing that had some hella horsepower in its engine and could whip the shit out of all these other new, pristine, fancy-looking, fast, outrigging boats. You know what I'm saying? With guys with, with major artillery. You mean, I mean, have you ever heard so many machine guns? And at the very end, we're doing the scene where it looks like he's going to try to go between two boats. And, of course, I'm having flashes of um, Last Crusade here. You know, don't go between the boats and all this kind of stuff. The guys are standing on the boat point blank pointing their guns. Now, these are not handguns where they're trying to, you know, target. This is like, you know, machine guns where they're just spraying. You know, back and forth spraying, and they're just standing there, not taking cover, just standing there. And the bullet, you know, it's like the, they weren't even shooting at them. And it's just like, wow, these guys went to the Stormtrooper school. I mean, they, they couldn't hit a barn door. It was absurd to me. And then he hits them and knocks them both out. To me, the boat scene was absurd. It's like, okay, one of the cool things we love about James Bond in general is that he doesn't have to have fancy stuff, right? He can take a beat-up-ass old car and whoop your ass even if you have the best car, right? That's what's right. cool about Bond. So we are seeing those skills here. But it seemed almost comical because the boat, like I said, it in no way at least make it somewhat comparable to what these guys had. And this is this old wooden rickety-looking 
needing a paint job thing. And it, to me, it just seemed absurd. It's like, wouldn't that boat have broken up a long time ago as he keeps running into people and running into people and running into people? And did he really even need to go after her? What was the point in going after her? Did he think he was getting more of his story there, or was he just going to save the day? Going to save her, and also she, he somehow knew that she was his best lead at that moment. He knew she was connected to Green in some way. And I guess he was starting to put it together that Green wanted her killed. And I guess he thought she was going to get go get killed with the general and the company and so forth. So he didn't know she was on a revenge mission. So, right. you know, he more or less rescues her. It's kind of the same situation that you have in Fear Eyes Only. It's the same story right. as, you know, Melina's story. And, you know, remember Bond ends up with Melina and they escape in her his little car. And that's how they kind of, you yeah. know, start off it's the adventure together. Very, very and similar. Her plot line is very similar in, in that way. And a lot of Quantum of Solace is, is kind of Bond-used spare parts right. in many ways. Well, at this point, we've had a car chase, a foot chase, and a boat chase. And a motorcycle and a motorcycle. Thing. Right. So we're trying everything. And later on, we'll get a plane, right? You know, one of the things that I wrote down was that this is the most times he's been on different vehicles and all that kind of stuff in a film. There is no specialty car. It's just him going from one to the next to the next. Right. Score one for Live and Let Die when it comes to boat chases and zero for Quantum of Solace. Again, not that it has to live up to it, but that's a lot to no, live up gotta to. You've got to try. you got to step up and go, what can we do yeah. in 2008 to make our boat chase something bigger and better that you haven't seen before? Forget that, that Live and Let Die had a boat chase that set a world record at the time. Okay. Yeah. Forget anything like that. We don't do that anymore. We just CG, CG, and we we need to move on to the next shot. You know, and it's just like, wow. You know, you just keep making mediocrity after mediocrity, and expect me to accept it as fantastic action. I can remember hearing gasps from the audience when they were jumping from those cranes in Casino Royale. Exactly. I don't. I don't hear any gasps when these kind of action scenes go on the screen. People are just passively waiting for him to be over with, I think. I mean, ultimately. Think about what he does after the boat. He hops into a car, calls M, checks on Dominic Green. M calls for the United States. They figure out, they pinpoint where he is, and they decide to track him. And that's what Bond does, and he follows him there to that opera scene. I mean, we get the scene with Felix Leiter, of course, and we learn that the U.S. has a deal going on and Leiter's not really happy with it but he's kind of forced to go along with it so obviously the U.S. and our dominant green are tied in together right. but that's all that happens I mean really yeah the whole boat chase and Camille was ultimately pointless in terms of getting Bond to the next step once he had the name Dominic Green, that was all he really needed. It was a scene for just the fact of having a boat chase scene. Again, we're seeing this again and again and again. Oh, we need to have this oh, yeah, kind of we, scene. And we we'll see it again. We're not even right. done yet. We haven't got to the plane yet, which is one of the worst. I mean, to me, Camille's a waste in the entire film. She has no. She's just along for the ride. You know what I mean? She's she's in Bond's backpack and he's carrying her along just because she's a hot piece of ass, probably. Well, at least with Melina and Free Eyes Only, we see the murder. Right. Of her parents. Right. We see the assassin murder, so we understand. We don't get anything from Camille. I mean, other than we learn later on she might used to be in Bolivian Secret Service. I mean, everyone's <laughs> a freaking agent in these movies. Right. But okay. But we don't know anything about her. And really, if you think about it, her, her backstory is just O-Rin from Kill Bill. Yeah. Same thing. 
Mother was raped, father killed, house burned, she got some scars, and she's on a revenge mission. Right. I mean, it's it's the oldest plot in the book. But there's no backstory to her, and that's the problem. She's just a walking, empty character because the film wants to be the shortest James Bond film ever. Normally, <laughs> we would have given her five minutes right. of screen time right. to set her up as a Bond female, a Bond woman character. I mean, hell, even, you know, Cara Milovy gets more screen time in Living Daylights to set up her character. <laughs> right. You know, even Loopy from License to Kill gets more Loopy. to set her character up. Yeah. So I don't know. I just I felt like they shortchanged her in terms of what they could have done. Um, but be that as it may, I mean, the way the plot works, it's Bond luckily moving from A to B to C to D, just one down right. to another. He gets all the way up to the opera scene. Opera. And this is an interesting set piece, and it's it's one that I like and I and I really hate at the same time, because um, there's a lot of things to like in it, and ultimately I, I do think it's a disappointment. But the the concept and on paper, I think is a very good idea, and I thought it was really casual how Bond just kind of slid his way in backstage, sure. found himself a tuxedo, sure, and then boom, he's right in action. Well, and I like the set, and one of the things that um, the production designer had said about this was that it was very much a uh, tip of the hat to Ken Adam. And if you look at this opera scene, it is pretty big and pretty uh, expansive. Oh, and it's yeah. it's fantastic. It's a fantastic set. You can see some of that money where they spent here on the screen a little bit. And so I thought that was nice. I don't know that they covered it as much as I would have liked to have seen it even more, although it did, it did give you a little bit of sense of space, which was nice. But we put him in this interesting setting, and I think it's a smart setting in that if these guys were going to meet, they would meet in that kind of a situation. Sure. Where they could talk to each other, and it wouldn't be like, okay, we're over here having a meeting that someone can follow. So I like that setup, but at the same time, it is all integral to the fact that Bond puts that little thing in his ear and hears it. And again... We're back to the place of accidents happening and Bond taking advantage of it. Is that he just happens to be standing. Now, again, this is a massive stadium-like place for this opera. And he just happens to be standing where they're giving out the bags. And he witnesses... Well, I think I was telling you, I don't have a problem with Bond figuring it out. Because we all know Bond is intuitive and he's smarter and he's going to notice things. It's a, it's an editing choice. I mean, what you do is, is you have Bond looking down and he sees one person get a bag normally and then he looks over here and comes back. Another person gets a bag and it's right off from this stack and then he looks over here and then a third person gets a normal bag and then when he looks back, someone gets one from down below. So he goes, well, wait a second, why is the fourth bag coming from below the table? Right. You set it up by repetition. But they didn't That's set it up. Happened. That's the problem. He just saw the one bag come from underneath. He saw the guy get it and start following the guy. Again, this is what the film is asking us to do. It's just, ah, uh, accept it. Just move it along. Just move it along. Just accept it. Right. And instead of just that he was accidentally there at the right time. See, I want it to be not like Indiana Jones 4 where it's just, oh, it was an accident and someone else is leading the way. No, no, no. We are here to see a James Bond movie, not him falling through and finding his things by accident and Camille accidentally driving up at the exact right time. Get in. We're here to follow this based on his skill. You know what I mean? It's like his investigation. He's walking through it. 
And at the same time, what you said would have set it up perfectly that he intuitively would have gone to that and said, oh, well, that's, you know, I need to investigate this. And it's just like, wow, (laughs) sorry. You know, it would have taken you an extra, what, 15 seconds to show the the previous stuff? If it, if even fifteen seconds, right. but yeah, exactly the kind of thing. And you know what? Marks Forrester spends more time showing us people backstage getting ready for the show than he does in that sequence of Bond trying to what figure was that, that out. The, the priorities are different through the entire film. He does that. He's always off the main action, and I, I, oh, yeah. I, I don't understand that. That's just an artistic choice of him saying, "Oh, this has something to do with it." We get that whole montage of when Bond is walking in that we see people getting ready and 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 all mm-hmm. that and and i like the music it's some really nice uh david arnold music in there in that section it very barry-esque if you will it's one thing i, I noted mm-hmm. here but at the same time it's just this montage uh, it, it, it's supposed to obviously bring us into our new location but you know a good wide shot would have covered that you know what i'm saying and instead right, right. like you said he's focusing on non-essentials for some sort of artistic merit and not on the action. I came to see Bond, and I want to watch Bond intuitively figure that thing out. It's like anyone that says, you know, they're bored by watching Bond play cards. Well, you're in the wrong movie, pal. You know? Right. Yeah, I want to watch Bond do things like Indiana Jones. I want to watch Indiana Jones figure things out. I'm invested into this character. And any time that you're cutting away from other elements that have nothing to do with the plot and nothing to do with, you know, moving Bond forward, it's just distracting. You're making a Bond movie. And, I mean, that's sort of what embracing doing a Bond movie should be all about. I don't think it should be about making it about you, i.e. if you're the director. Right. It's about servicing Bond and, and the history and the story. It's it's a great set piece, and I love Bond putting in the earpiece and hearing them all and then calling them all out. I really think you people should find a better place to meet. And then all the stupid ones getting up to leave and he gets their photos. I'm thinking right. that is a Bond moment. That's Bond being clever. Finally, the set pieces pan off, and I really like it. And I really like when they cut away to white, and he doesn't get up. He's right. smarter than all the others. Right. That all worked for me. That was all great. But then something really interesting happens, and it'll be a first in a Bond movie. Um, he'll walk down this little staircase, and he'll come face-to-face with Dominic Green, and suddenly all the sound has been pulled out of a Bond movie. Uh-huh. And we're just going to go on the opera music playing over the next action sequence without the sound effects. Right. Really interesting. And I think right then and there, and we mentioned his name earlier, but you hand this same footage to Sam Peckinpah, and you would have had one of the most spectacular Bond sequences ever. <laughs> one of the best shootouts in any of the films. Unfortunately, I would have preferred him to set up the angles also and shoot the action sequence because whoever chose the angles and, and the choice of shooting this action sequence needs to go back to action 101. It's a complete mess. Conceptually, it's brilliant. Execution, failure. Well, it never gives you any kind of bead. I- I'm all for you know stepping into that kind of new territory and investigating it but you know again it, we we know that he loves to do the cross cut and we're going back between the opera and back between the action and back between the opera and I'm just like don't show me the opera again you know and it's like I can never quite tell you know what's going on and what exactly his his line of action is from you know where he's gone to where he's headed and just going back and forth really fast doesn't really mean anything I went back and I watched it a couple of times because I wanted to, to see 
okay, they're cutting to that angle. And I just don't think that the angles work that well together. The choice of the geography, it could have been really exciting of him running through that whole kitchen area and, right. you know, going through that staircase. And, you know, they keep cutting back to that eye and it's just like, boom, 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 boom. It's like techno music in a club. It just beats you over the head. There's no grace. There's well, no ballet. There's nothing. I think, again, what you're seeing is self-indulgence here. You're saying we're going to make this arty section arty now instead of, you know, and then trying to imply the same action beats that you've already set up in the car chase and the foot chase and the boat chase and all that, this wham, 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 but within this kind of thing where they, they take the music out. So it's like they're, again, experimenting, but they're using the grammar that they've already set up for their action and instead of making it fluid it just comes across as as going against each other you know it's like noise (laughs) the thing that i took from it was i felt like wow good attempt but you missed it and that's even worse you know what i mean if you're going to be bold enough to attempt it at least offer something. I don't know. Maybe they couldn't offer. Maybe that's just that's as best as it got it made me long for the days of john glenn yeah. I, I mean, it's just, it was that simple. John Glenn would have done it very efficiently, and I would have yeah. been able to follow the scene just fine. Well, I'm not, I'm not. tried to be artistic and show offy about it. And I'm not against trying something new and being artistic, but at the same time, make it make sense and don't try to um, incorporate. You, you've, you've, you've just gone off a different uh, cliff here, and yet you're clinging to your action beats from before, and it's a whole different ballgame. Anyways, at that point, we see the deal where he drops the agent, and we find out that mm-hmm. he's actually a British agent, which is no good. And then, boom, the red tape falls. M officially declares... Restrict Bond's movements. Cancel his cards. Put an alert on his passports, all of them. And I want to know everything we don't know about Haynes. He's outside of MI6. Yeah, let's don't run ballistics on the bullet of the agent shot and see if it came from Bond's gun. No, yeah, of let's course just not. blame Bond. And let's move on. Yeah. I, again, it's just for the sake of the plot so it can move along and move itself along. I just think in a realistic, plausible situation, again, I think M would have benefit of the doubt. Don't you think she would think that Bond, from at least the previous adventure in Casino Royale, would at least have thought, well, this guy's not just a killer. He's not an idiot. You know, he's not just going to kill everyone instead of trying to get information from well, him. That's right. very... See, this movie relies on a plot point that M thinks Bond is just on a reckless revenge mission. Right. Even though the information doesn't really lead for her to believe that, she has to believe a lot of other people's bullshit lies in order to come to that conclusion. Right. He's officially rogue at this point. And then, boom, we hit the 46-minute uh, point, and that's when I'm ready. That's when I do my first eye pull. Uh, sit back in my chair, heavy breath, and the boredom starts to set in. And we go to see this. We have this scene with uh, Mathis, okay? Again, Mathis, right. we're bringing a character back from Casino Royale, which I don't think is necessary. It's not like I saw him and I went, hey, awesome. I just kind of went, oh. So I thought if he could be useful in a Joe Don Baker way as a character coming back would be kind of interesting. Yeah. Because I think Mathis could be a, a better realized character and a better resourceful character than he was chosen for. Mm-hmm. It seems like he was just chosen for dead man duty in this film. That's all that he was chosen for. Let's bring him along so he can die in Bond's arms a little bit later in the movie. Oh, the, And we yeah. can have a pseudo-emotional scene. The Apollo Creed um, death. 
Yeah. Oh, com- completely. Because yeah. I like him as a character, and I think it's interesting to bring him back. And you know, he got the house, and Bond relies on him as the only guy that he can trust or whatnot. Okay, I'm with it. Um, there's some strangeness that goes on here. Watch the scene from Mathis's terrace to when they cut to the plane. It's like there's a weird shot of Mathis's girlfriend, and then it cuts to Bond drinking, and then to the plane on a on a photo. It's the oddest three cuts I've seen. But what I always thought was a missed opportunity was is the scene on the airplane when Mathis and Bond have that talk, and Bond's a little drunk. I thought, now this is a great moment for to give Mathis a monologue or something, and maybe to bring in the whole meaning of the Quantum of Solace story into the entire film. But again, the priorities are different. The film's not worried about that. This is just a momentary blip, so we can get right onto the next action beat. You know, I don't even think they wanted to take the time and care to really make a moment out of this. Right. This film does not breathe like Casino well, Royale. I think did. they were trying to give you a moment where you would invest in Mathis a little more so that his death would have some weight to it. And the way that they do that is they connect him to Vesper Lind, okay? And they mm-hmm. do that because, you know, he's always telling him, I was sorry to hear about Vesper. I think she loved you. You know, Vesper died, you know, for you and, you know, and, and, and all that. So he's always, you know, into his dying breath, he's talking about Vesper. Forgive her. Forgive yourself. So in the scene, which I liked, I like the tip of the hat back to Casino Royale because we get the Vesperlin love theme from Casino Royale kind of tinkling on the piano in the background. And he's drinking mm-hmm. the same drink. He's drinking the Vesper drink that he created. Right. And so that's nice. Again, you know, but it's sad that some of the nicer moments in a film point back to a previous film, to another right. great film. And we still see that Bond's main motivation is kind of a revenge thing to get to the right people. And all that, mm-hmm. so so that's cool. I mean, his driving point is to get to that guy that conned Vesper. So I like that. But again, like you said, it's it's they could have played it a little longer and let it breathe. You know, have that sitting on their tongues, the Vesper stuff, and then you could go into more of what the hell the quantum is because we certainly don't really get a vibe of it the rest of the film. And so I, mean, uh, I know we know Michael G. Wilson chose the title. Quantum of Solace from a short story that Ian Fleming wrote. Mm-hmm. And I think Daniel Quigg was quoted as saying, I was unsure at first. Bond is looking for his Quantum of Solace and that's what he wants. He wants his closure. And Ian Fleming says that if you don't have a Quantum of Solace in your relationship, then the relationship is over. And I guess that's what Bond is seeking um, you know, after Vesper. Right. But the actual short story, Quantum of Solace, it's really kind of strange because it's not an action story. It's actually just about a dinner party that Bond attends to. There's a guest of a governor and um, and a hostess, and basically Bond eats dinner with them. And he doesn't. He's not very impressed with the company. And then he hears a story about a woman and an affair that she had. And basically, Bond learns that you know the, this actually this woman's story is actually kind of fascinating and interesting. And then he learns that it was actually the woman at the table all along. And Bond sort of realizes is that sometimes his adventures pale in comparison with real-life drama. Bond reflects that the lives of people he often passes somewhat superficial judgments upon can in fact hide somewhat poignant episodes in their lives. So again, it's it's kind of an odd little one-off little story. But I think somewhere in there... 
it'd have been nice if they could have reached into more Ian Fleming and sprinkled it into this story. Because I think that's what we like so much about Casino Royale, is it had so much Ian Fleming to it. Right. And it was certainly missing in this installment. As you read the books, if you read them in order, you feel him sort of fall in love with James Bond, and then you start, he starts to hate him. And, the, and then he kills him off, and then he brings him back again. And that in itself is the fascinating part about reading them. You can see him struggling with the character. And I, 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 I enjoyed that about reading the books again. Well, they were just name-robbing is what they were doing so that it would still be under an, another Ian Fleming title. Oh, they didn't want to use Risico? Yeah. <laughs> or the Hildebrandt Conspiracy or whatever it's called. The Hildebrandt Rarity. There you right. go. There you go. Yeah. Property of a Lady. And uh, I think there's 007 in New York. I think those are, that's what we have left. Uh, let's just call it the Bond supremacy and stick with that. <laughs> you know, that works just fine, doesn't it? The Bond, the Bond oh. ultimatum. Oh, man. That's the thing. The moment a Bond film decides to be an imitator and not an innovator, then there's problems. Absolutely. That goes against the code of Bond. Well, we've got two years in between here. Uh, we had a whole lot of money to throw at this thing. Um, you know, maybe it should have been three years. I don't know. I mean, I know we were all itching to get to the next one. $200 million for a budget for this thing. That astonishes me looking at this film. Because yeah. while I know they went to the more countries than the other Bond films, they six did. countries or whatever, yep. to me it looks like low-rent Bond. If you remember in the early Connery days, uh, one of the big draws was, you know, when, in Dr. No, he's in Jamaica. Right, they were travelogues in some ways. They were places you'd never seen on film Exactly, before. you're like, oh, this is so lush, this is so beautiful, let's buy tickets and go to Jamaica after seeing James Bond. And it's like, they've really thrown that away. I mean, you don't, not that we, you know, anyone's going to vacation in Bolivia or, or anything like that. I don't know why they had to waste the money going to all these authentic locations when ultimately... In the filmmaking style and the way they chose to film things and cut it together, it was almost as if it didn't matter. Right. If it was on a back lot or on that real location or what. Right. Because I never got to appreciate it because of the film grammar. Right. Exactly. Um, and that's one thing that's that's great about the Bond movies is they are classical. And, you know, sometimes there's a reason why those things work. I certainly think they're going to need to... Well, I don't know if they need to go back and relearn all that. This film was a freaking hit. Yeah. So, I mean, what are you going to do? We're oh, sitting here gotta... bashing it for an hour and a half, and it was a huge hit. This thing made money. I hear a lot of Bond fans like it better than Casino Royale. I know I'm in the minority when that conversation comes up, because you'll never convince me this is a better film than Casino Royale. But Ever. you, you got to remember that this film was built on the this the popularity of this Bond film was built on the back of Casino Royale. You got to remember, it's like everyone was jazzed to see Quantum of Solace because because Casino Royale was so awesome, right? If this was the reboot with Daniel Craig, oh, it would have been bad. Yeah, I would have no. Oh, I would have trashed it. Yeah, I yeah. would have fallen into what all the critics were were gearing up, ready to to kill Craig with. Right. And, and I wouldn't have hated Craig in the movie. I would have just said, God, he had nothing to do. Except run around and chase, and, and that was about it. Now, back to the story. Now, we did have a little bit of a hot Bond chick action going on here, I have to admit. Mm -hmm. Mr. Bond, my name is Fields. I'm from the consulate. Fields. Bond are... woman number two enters the picture. Right, exactly. And and I wasn't so hot on uh, Camille. She's I, you know, all that. But, uh, no, uh, 
when Miss Fields came in, and well, you know, the credits call her Strawberry Fields, and that's obviously yeah, just they... a pun to try to play her up as a Bond girl and to use those names. Sure. You know, with her red but hair. But she just like wants that. to be called Fields. Just Fields. And she's there for a particular reason. And she walks in and she's wearing that trench coat, and I swear she looks like a stripper going to a bachelor party. You know, she's going to rip that thing off and start dancing. I mean, this is, it, it, it cracks me up that the, the British government would send, or whoever sent her, would say, go pick up James Bond. Yeah, right. She's a present, man. It's like the second he saw her, he was like, raga. It's like, she belongs to me. <laughs> Do hope so. <laughs> The only operative they had working in the office in that in that particular yeah it's like now let's send her instead of the 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 twelve guys you know what I mean because she could bring him down before twelve guys could probably but uh, I'm so glad they put that scene in there because it was definitely a throwback you know it's like yes you know we know that James Bond was in love with Vesper Lind but he's still James Bond and when he sees something he likes he takes it. And he kind of seduces her. He takes her out of the crappy hotel to the big hotel. You know, and he says, I can't find the, um, the stationery. You come and help me look. In the background, you can hear the James Bond theme playing ever so lightly. And you know. He's just, again, he's teasing us again. He's not there yet, he's but just almost teasing. there. Don't you know he's just dying? Just say, can we do the theme now? Finally, David Arnold. <laughs> Well, there's one thing I've been picking up now that is defining Craig as Bond for me. And I first saw it in Casino Royale when he was walking away from the villa when he he crashed that car and he just, like, tossed the keys aside. He does the same key toss when he walks into the hotel room. (laughs) And he's just got this nonchalant way of just tossing keys aside. You know what I'm talking about? You know that first first key toss? I actually wrote, wrote that down. He actually says a lot with that key toss. Well, the key toss is something now like I'm seeing a consistency in his character. Uh, you know, I saw it in Casino Royale. I saw it again when he was in this hotel, and it's like smooth. It just it, it defined an aspect. It's like you give Monica a pair of keys. It's just like, yeah, I threw it over the side. Right, but then M was saying, can you please not kill the people that you need to question? He goes, no problem. And then he tosses it, and he tosses it kind of hard, and you know that he's yeah. basically saying, kiss my ass, you know? <laughs> totally. Like, this is not even something I want to deal with right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, and that's the thing is that, it's all in there. This is the same James Bond from the last movie. Remember how we talked about how fierce he was and how badass he was. We just don't get to see that smart. I mean, I was just thinking about this. We don't get one scene that even comes close to giving us the glory of his torture scene in Casino Royale. Oh, I know. I mean, think about how how awesome that scene was when he's like, just know that, you know, you died scratching my balls, you know? I mean, it's just oh, like... he won us uh, all over I know, in that and, scene. And that's what I'm saying is that there's nothing that even remotely... He has not... What moment does he have in this movie? I mean, we're grasping for moments. Remember, I also told you, I mean, I think that the scene with uh, Fields here is one of them. But then the only other one is possibly when uh, he kills that guy and he says, Tell us slave was a dead end. We get a little bit of a little Connery line right there. Those moments are, are, are vacant in this film. It's like they just said, we're not going to highlight anything. This is just, I mean, really, this is, the more and more I think about this really is License to Kill. You know, it's just it's just empty. It's just vapid. Yeah. It's music without bass. You ever listen to music and turn the bass completely off and it's just tenor? It's just kind of like real empty music at the top? That's what this entire film is, really. 
and it just plods along and just keeps going on. Bond and Fields go to that party, and, you know, Camille shows up, and then Bond sort of leaves with Camille, and then Fields does something really smooth. Bond passes her down the steps. She doesn't even acknowledge him. She just immediately takes on her role. Right. But we don't find out what happens. I'm guessing she tried to infiltrate Dominic Green somehow. Unfortunately, the next time we see her, she's going to be covered in oil, lying on a bed. So again, it's it's taking a character that we spent a little time setting up and disregarding her and throwing her away. Without even showing what her sacrifice was, showing... Right even what she had to go through to get to that point. Instead, you know, the film goes off with Bond and Camille, and again, setup mode. You know, the cops show up, and what the hell happened to Mathis? It's all off screen. Mathis has these contacts in town with the general, and what double crosses, and oh, who cares? He's just in the trunk. I mean, that's what the film's asking us to swallow. Now Bond's set up and, and is responsible for Mathis's death. We, again, trying to, to duplicate that shower moment from uh, Casino with Mathis in his arms and giving Bond that quiet little moment. And then, boom, we're off again. And Bond and Camille, and he's like, You're going to show me Dominic Green's Tierra project. Are you up to it? Suddenly they show up, and Bond and her are hopping in a plane and scouting out the territory. And do you want to talk about your monkey ship moments? There's a few (laughs) of them coming up here. How kind of you, Mr. Kid. But one of them that bothers me is fucking Daniel Craig is one of the toughest Bonds we have. Uh-huh. Agreed? Nope. No, no doubt. argument. No, the only one who can no come doubt. close is Connery. Okay. So he goes up to this guy, and he doesn't have any money, and a guy want, originally wants Camille as uh, payment for the plane, right. but takes the car as collateral, as Bond tells us. And they, you know, Bond says, He'll make much more when he sells his own. And then Bond takes off in the plane. And the next thing you know, bad guys show up in planes, so we can have a big plane battle scene. Right. Now, why the hell Bond didn't knock that guy out on the ground is beyond me. It's cold cock him, exactly. I mean, even Pierce Brosnan's Bond cold cocks on the top, right there on the back. In fact, it's exactly that moment when Pierce Brosnan karate chops her on the back that I feel like Brosnan gets Bond. It's like, yeah, that's a Bond moment. That's exactly what Bond would do. It's when Roger Moore threatens to break Maude Adams' arm. You're hurting it. I'll break it. Bond is not going to leave something behind that could later bite him in the butt. That's Bond being just careless right there. And what it is is the screenwriter's just doing a lazy excuse so we can get an action sequence. And I fucking hate it. Right, and that's the deal, is that, again, we're seeing something being done for the exclusive reason of being done in a film. It's not being done in the real world. It's like, oh, we need to do this. We need to do a plane scene now. We need to, you know, have all this, you know, air fire pilot stuff. And it's just like, oh, my God, you you didn't, the motivation wasn't correct. It didn't make any sense. You know, find, see, someone else has got to report it, not this same guy who he could have just cold cocked. And knocked out. At least knock the guy out, have him wake up, and then sell you out. I mean, come on. Right. Just anything, you know? Or have have his partner walk out of the bathroom or something and, and then run and, and report it. You know, anything. Exactly. Something. But, anything. But I just, again, lazy it, storytelling. Remember, it's like the fulcrum moments that move him into 
the things that move the plot forward. That's where they're failing. Not necessarily in, okay, here's a, a plane scene. You know, we'll get to the mechanics of that. But, but what I'm saying is, is that the thing that propels him on his next state of action is always weak and broken and not motivated correctly. And so... I, you know, from that point on, I'm like, give me a break. You could have completely avoided this situation. Think about this. If he would have cold cocked that guy, let's just play it out. Uh, the plane, his plane wouldn't have crashed. He wouldn't have fallen into the ravine. He wouldn't have seen the water. Okay. The entire right. plot has changed. Everything has changed, you know, mm-hmm. but because of that one little faux pas, which he is too smart of a guy to miss. Again, so they can jump out of the airplane with the one parachute. Of course, yeah. Then they had to they had to get out of there to do it. And again, you which know, oh god, now you're getting into some really painful, painful stuff here. <laughs> I mean, in the old days, I mean, I, I think back to just Octopussy and those that guy hanging onto the airplane <laughs> as it flips upside down, and they're doing that fight. And you know, I think back to the opening scene in Moonraker. You know, okay, no more dogging on Moonraker. All right, no more. It kicks the shit out of the action sequence of the skydiving in this movie, okay? No more beating up on Moonraker anymore. It rises up in points because at least it tried to be real. Yeah. Well, and the whole, the whole idea of someone jumping out of a plane without a parachute anymore, you know, it, it's like a while back that would be like, oh, my God, I can't believe he did that, you know? But nowadays it's kind of like, eh, you know, we've seen it 16 times. Don't expect that to hold any weight. Well, if you're going to do it, you at least do it for real and let me watch it. Right. Don't just CGI it out and just make it all fakey fake. Yeah, and it is fakey fake. It does not look great. It, it looks bad. You know, no. it makes Bond look like all the others, just another generic action film. Right. And that hurts to say because I don't want Bond and Indiana Jones to be like all the others. No, that's the problem. So then we crash and we conveniently crash down in the little crevice, the sinkhole, where he can find the water. But first, we've got to go through and suffer through the story of poor Camille and how her parents were killed. (laughs) When she started into that, I was like, You know, it's like, it's like, oh, wow, I totally, you know, it's like if I'm in the theater, I'm totally going to get my drink or take a piss at this moment in the film. Because it's like, it's like, yeah, we're going to stop. Okay. We've crashed. We're going to sit for a minute. And now let's talk. And and let's get to that story. That's important, right? Not the fact that, you know, what just happened. <laughs> so <laughs> it's all about Camille. I said get in. So, and it's just padding, you know? It's like, we need a hot chick to hang out with her. And that's basically what it is. Well, then they walk back to the town, and they walk back to the hotel, and Bond gets the note that says, run. And he goes upstairs, and M's already there. Right. And obviously, they've all, the Americans have set Bond up to make him look like he's, you know, this wild renegade loose cannon right and we get the goldfinger homage i guess with fields covered in oil but really that doesn't do a lot for me you know just because you wink wink, nod nod i was just starting to know that character and they just took her out of the picture do you remember we liked the tip of the hat that they did in die another day when they went into the room with the old equipment and we saw the gator from octopussy and stuff like that and you're like oh Oh, how cool is that but what they're doing here is they're emulating actions that occurred. They're tipping back to things that happened in previous Bond films, obviously. 
And really, that's the only reason this happened. It's not like somebody said, hey, what if we covered her in oil? It's this big statement. And then you get a sequence that had potential, the elevator sequence. But, God, it's over and cut so damn fast. Well, and I'm it sorry. It doesn't make me want to hit the rewind button like Die Hard with a Vengeance does when yeah. I see McClane take out an elevator full of guys. Or even when Connery has his big fight in an elevator that's a tiny set piece. I mean, maybe this wasn't and doesn't need to be a set piece. But, God, at least just photograph it and cut it in a way well, and the point where is, I can enjoy it. Do it do it on a stairway. Do it. I mean, does it have to be in an elevator again? You know, one guy versus four guys in a very small space? It's been done. You know, it's and, and you know what? You didn't do it better than McTiernan did in Die Hard with a Vengeance. You didn't. And it's just kind no, of like, no, again, you don't. it's like... There was, an, there was a choice there that said, why don't we have Bond kick everyone's ass in an elevator? It's not like they just said, oh, look, there's an elevator. Let's do that. You know, it's like right. all this is you have to decide what you're going to shoot because you got to get your cameras all up in there. So they made a conscious choice to do that, knowing that there had already been a scene that anyone who, who follows action films knows is just, you know, landmark for the whole <laughs> elevator kick ass action scene <laughs> genre. Okay, and so they're just going to pity Annie it, and and it's just one little thing, you know, and it's zip zap over, and that's fine. It doesn't have to be important, but at the same time, by walking into something like that as an action piece, you're setting yourself up. These movies are supposed to be action movies. We want to see Bond in action when we can, and you know, seeing Bond being taken away unjustly and then getting himself out of it. Heck yeah, I want to see that. That's great. You know, that's a good Bond little little moment, but I didn't enjoy it in terms of the way it was put together. Now, what I did enjoy more than that action scene is when he walks up to M and says, Miss Fields showed true bravery. I want that mentioned in your report. I really like that because really it's at that moment M realizes, well, wait a second. He's coming back to tell me this after he just took out five of my men. Now, there's more to going on here than I know. And I think, you know, it, she turns and she realizes that Bond is her guy. And that screw the Americans and their trumped up charges. We're going to we're going to stay with him but and see, see where he goes. Remember, the, the assistant prime minister or whatever they call it over there in England, uh, the guy told her. Say all right. Say Green is a villain. If we refuse to do business with villains, we'd have almost no one to trade with. The world's running out of oil, Em. The Russians aren't playing ball. The Americans and Chinese are dividing up what's left. Right or wrong doesn't come into it. We're acting out of necessity. Bond is running wild. Who's to say he hasn't been turned? Pull him in. Or the Americans will put him down. No, no, we're with Mm. the Americans on this. So what if the, you know, power changes in Bolivia? We're on Dominic Green's side. So what happens at that point? We have a rogue alert, ladies and gentlemen. That's right, M has gone rogue now. I give a shit about the CIA or their trumped up evidence. He's my agent, and I trust him. <laughs> so now M. Everybody's going rogue. That's right. Well, you know, at least we know that our main characters know the difference between right and wrong. Because they're making a statement here about governments going along with bullshit. It just doesn't matter anymore. It's like they go with what what is the most beneficial thing to their cause, which is mm-hmm. to let something like the quantum exist and flourish and work alongside it as, as a whole other government system. At least we know Bond and M, 
you know, know the difference between right and wrong, and they say, no, we're at least going to investigate it, and, you know, if we got to go rogue, so what? We go rogue. But then, you know, what happens? Bond walks out of the hotel, and guess who pulls up in a car? Get in. I said get in. Camille again. Right at get the right time. Come with me if you want to live. Exactly. Oh. And we're off. Again, and we're off know. again. And this well, time, actually, we got one more little thing we got to do first. We got the little Felix Leiter meeting. Ah, very you know, important. Where, where Bond has to learn where the location of this final little hotel is because I guess I didn't find it in the airplane scene or <laughs> wherever else. Right. They don't know where the the final meeting is going to take place. So right. we get the little lighter scene, and I like the choice of Jeffrey Wright as Felix Leiter right. as a Bond fan. The more lighter, the better for me. Absolutely. I like him as a character. I like their relationship. And I think Craig and Jeffrey Wright got a good chemistry going. I wanted to see more of lighter in this film. And it looked like it was going to go in that direction. But it didn't really, ultimately. And then you had that scene in the bar where there was the two of them there. And then the Americans come in. And it's just another shaky, quick cut, chase shootout scene right that's just as forgettable as all the other See, ones and, we've seen and, and, and remember I, I told you this the other night is that i was saying it's such a great history that james bond has with felix leiter actually it's funny because jeffrey wright is only the second person to ever play felix leiter twice okay we, yeah. we of course know who the other one is sanchez sanchez yeah david Hedison. <laughs> but that was like 15 years apart from each other <laughs> in his movies. So at least we get the same cast of characters. No, I like I like him a lot. I think Jeffrey Wright nailed it. I think he's perfect. I want to see them working together more. I was saying, wouldn't it have been cool if the agents were coming down on Bond and to somehow save him, they had to get kind of into a fake fight and make it look real. Right, and, um, right. And in the end, he's got to let himself get his ass kicked or something so that James can get away. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, some kind of thing that would that would go to that extent or something to where he's helping him in a more direct way than just that. Maybe that's not practical, but something that would show even, you know, their relationship even stronger. Now, again, this is still, they don't know each other that well at this point. If you consider- Yeah, it is only coming a couple of days off from their last encounter right but at the very least we have that history and we know that they as the authors of the film should know that everyone knows that history and that they need to do some more bonding to get to that position to where that they are very good friends yeah i think this film had a good opportunity to sort of give us some of the seeds that really established this famous friendship but they blew it they just they didn't have it and i think the the reoccurring theme of this entire discussion is they didn't have it i.e the script right this is something that they cobbled together it, i think paul haggis turned it in the day before the writer strike so they couldn't work on it for x amount of time during production and it shows right i just what astonishes me is that it just seems like the bond factory like a tv show ought to have a stable of about four writers always writing Bond scripts. Right. Like, always. I mean, they should have at least three completed Bond scripts on the shelf at any given time that they can pluck either scenes or ideas out of. They should have a whole list of titles that could be potential titles for the next series of films. It just seems like they're they're George Lucasing this thing one film at a time and just making it up as they go along. And I would have thought that after the success of Casino Royale, they would have really mapped something out 
and, and planned it out a little bit better, but it just felt like that it caught them off, off guard and maybe a year after Casino Royale, it's like, well, well, shit, we need to be in production on the next one like tomorrow. <laughs> right. So we better put something together fast. If there's that much and money involved, you would think that it would be a machine of production, that these guys you know, would instantly say, all right, we got we got to start planning the next and working toward the next. But at the same time, I just, uh, I don't know. I, 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 it needed to be developed more. You're right. So now we go out to the desert hotel, the hydrogen hotel. The is, hydrogen is hotel with the fuel cells that blow up on impact. <laughs> Boy, that looks good on film, doesn't it? <laughs> looks good on film, but is a bucket full of dumb, man. I am telling you, this hotel out in the middle of nowhere, which we never really understand why it's there, who it's there for, why there's no people in it. It's just there. You know, maybe, yeah. it, I mean, all I can figure is it was a hotel that they decided was going to be some great getaway for somebody, and then it didn't work. They barely talked about the science of it, because apparently there's a science fiction element to it. Well, it's where astronomers go to look up at the stars. It's a space observatory on the Chilean coast, uh, in the north of Chile. Um, the air is pure. There are stars from horizon to horizon. Then they have this extraordinary hotel, which is for the astronomers to stay in. It's beautifully designed because it, it, it sort of melts into the landscape. It's pure bond. Okay, well, that's fine. But why has it got to be run on fuel cells? That are, you know, to where, I mean, really, the thing goes completely haywire when Bond decides, you know, it, it, it cracks me up that, you know, Bond is always so stealthy, right? Um, and I can only figure that he blew in the front door of this place, guns blazing, jumping on that car so he could cause a diversion so that Camille could come in the back and kill El General, right? right. I mean, because right. why else would he not stealth in there himself? I mean, there's nobody around. He could stealth in there so easily, but at the same time, he just blows right in the front door, hollering and screaming and blowing. You know, he, he has already been in the company of Dominic Green, yet now he's hell-bent on putting a bullet in him, full throttle running at him, right? Did he discover mm -hmm. something new at that very moment that made him go Martin Riggs and ape shit? No. Well, that's just, what the whole point of that last action scene is, is... Is what? Just to kind of go in there guns blazing? Ultimately, he is after information. But the point of this whole scene does not seem to indicate that when he's just going in there in such a destructive force. Like you said, a stealth bond would have gone in there and plucked him out. Nobody would have noticed. Right, that's what I'm saying. But he, when he was so wrapped up in, in Camille's story of revenge, I mean, he's that invested in it. I mean, he doesn't even get to get to nail her in the end, you know? <laughs> he gets nothing out of the deal other than he was nice and let her complete her revenge arc. I'm afraid this same Bond from Casino Royale would have given her the boot. Sorry, lady, get out. Connery would have given her the boot a long time ago. You know, man talk. Sorry, get out. You've got no place here, lady. Well, and then, you know, we have to get the Camille gets beat up scene uh, before she gets her revenge. And by this time, it's just, it's really getting tired. And it's just another fight scene between Bond and the villain. 
and stuff is blown up and there's fireballs and there's glass. And, and it seems so ridiculous. I mean, I swear to God, that Jeep backs into those fuel cells and that whole place erupts. I mean, yeah. there's no way this place could ever be any kind of a safe hotel. I mean, it's like, come on, be practical at least. No no health or safety inspectors in the whole world would come to this place well, and say, oh, yeah, no problem. There's these hydrogen canisters or whatever well, all over anything, the place. anything, there would be concrete pillars or pylons in the way that would prevent anything from a car specifically well, from was driving this, Was this that a hotel area. that was being built and it just still wasn't safe yet? I mean, it wasn't finished? If it, that's the case, they didn't imply that. You know, they no, certainly come on, we're impl- thinking way too much. They don't want us to think this much. It's I know. just boom, boom, boom. But the go, only go, go. thing we got was at the very beginning where that one guy says, Oh no, it's you know, what's that sound? And he's like, What's that sound? Oh, it's the fuel cells coming on. This whole place is run by them. That's all we get. Yeah. See, this is why the Bond movies get the reputation for just being dumb and silly and unrealistic. Yeah, you know, this harkens back to some of the more sillier Roger Moore stuff that right. you just kind of rolled your eyes at. Absolutely. When the Bond films teetered off from what they started out being and uh and but not casino royale and again it just seems like the rule book was thrown out for this movie and they just thought they would wing it we get this big old thing there's fire everywhere bond is is cuddling camille did you think he was really going to shoot her for a moment camille yeah, when, he I was, wondered. when she was saying not like this not like this and it's like how are we going to get out of this and they're all trapped and then at the last second, that little piece off the wall falls. He sees the tank, blows it up, blows the hole, and they get out. Right, of it, right. You know? Yeah, I thought for a second he was just going to mercy kill her. And I'm like, whoa, that's very out of character. <laughs> it was an interesting moment there. And, it, and then, you know, we get Bond going after Dominic Green. And I guess to complete the, um, the Fields oil gag, you know, yes, he gets the information he wants out of Green, we're told. And he throws Green that little thing of oil and says, Yeah. I bet you make it 20 miles before you consider drinking that. It's a pretty damn cold way to kill somebody, I think. So I was cool with it. I thought it was kind of fun. But ultimately, we find out that someone shot him anyways. Right. Why right, was that necessary? I didn't, I didn't believe it. I didn't really think that, <laughs> that Dominic Green would watch that truck, you know, drive away. Yeah. And then he'd pick up that oil, stick it in his back pocket, and start walking yeah. 20 miles. <laughs> he'd be like, it's like, well, I've got this to drink when I'm ready for it. I just think he'd have left it behind and yeah. started walking. said, I can't drink know? that. It'll kill me. I'm not going to take that. <laughs> exactly. So I don't know. Whatever. Then, you know, Bond does what we don't expect or what we do expect is he goes and finds the person that was uh, setting up Vesper. Right. And that was good because that was the closure we were looking for. The whole exactly, movie yeah. was supposed to build toward that. He went through all this shit just to get to that point, mm-hmm. and that's fine. Man, you could have tagged that at the end of Casino Royale and skipped the entire film. You know what I mean? Because he comes back out, and he gets his closure that he's looking for, and says, Bond, I need you back. I never left. And then what does the film do? He throws us to the gun barrel. For the first time in history, in we get history. it at the end of the film, which is now they're trying to... T- and they put the title of the film up. I thought that was strange, too. They do the gun barrel, and then it says Quantum of Solace on screen. So, so what does that mean? They've never done that, that in 22 films. So what does that mean, that now, now this tale is over and he's Bond for sure? See, God, that's called the stretch. This entire movie didn't need to happen. You know, it's just... It's just 
a movie for the sake of making a movie ultimately is what this is. It's like a point five segment. You know, it's not even doesn't even feel like a full movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yet we've given it we've given it more than the point five segment. <laughs> we've given it way more time than it deserves. But uh yeah, I God, it's just empty, hollow. The hard thing is is that we have to compare it to Casino Royale because it is a direct sequel. It is going even as far as to telling us that this could be one film if you'd made one quick little splice because it's that quick of a time. And yet it's so far off base from what Casino Royale is that uh, it's hard to let it live on its own. I mean, could you really walk into that movie having not seen Casino Royale? I mean, maybe I would feel sorry would you for even you. Like Bond as a character without the weight of Casino Royale, what he would be right. meaningless to anyone. He just he's a guy that runs from here to here to there to there. You would have none of the weight of Vesper, so you wouldn't know why he's running around, why he cares. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's completely dependent on Casino Royale, and it's the first Bond film that's like that because all the right. others are not dependent. On the installment in front of it or behind it. Right, it's the next mission, and we need to get there on the next one. You know, if you want to talk the next one, we must get to that. And we need, okay, if we don't see Q, give us Money Penny. Don't forgo the history completely. I totally don't mind, you know, that everything is rebooted, that we have Daniel Craig, but... You know, if you're willing to show us those absurd computers like you are, then you're willing to step into the history a little bit and say, okay, we can we can open up some kind of gadgetry. You know, it doesn't have to be an invisible car, stupid. But it's like warm things up, start getting that way, because you can't do license to kill again. Sanchez! You can't, because at that point we're just gonna we're gonna be bored. No, I think they're in a critical position right now for me as a Bond fan. I mean, if they just want to go on to the the audience-pleasing methods that they used in Quantum of Solace. And I know this movie made money. It's not a question that it wasn't successful. 570 and I even million, read good reviews on it. $570 million worldwide. Uh, in our box office comparison that we've done with the other ones, if you look at worldwide adjusted... Um, places Quantum of Solace at number nine of all time. Uh, one film below Diamonds Are Forever and one above From Russia With Love. So, so they pulled it off. I mean, they pulled a they quick one it. and they got away with it. I right. mean, for, for the rush job that we're not sure, the writer's strike, we got to rush this thing in. We have five weeks to edit, blah, 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 blah. They got away with it at the end of the day. They did not make a memorable Bond film, I don't think. I think it's one that, while it's watchable, it's just so generic and unmemorable, it ranks really low for me in the overall series. I'd rather rewatch a lot of the other lesser ones. Let's just one. say that yeah. I, I rewatched it for the sake of recording this episode. <laughs> and that was, that was my driving force, really. Um, They're in Spy Who Love Me mode now. They literally are Goldfinger mode. They have to kick off one of the best Bond movies Ever, right. I think for the next installment, if you ask me. They can do it. I saw them do it with Casino Royale, so it's not well, like a peak they can't reach. We were satisfied with the origin tale from Casino Royale. They decided to extend that, okay? The extended edit, which adds a whole other film, right? So really, you're almost rebooting again and saying, okay, everything is new now. 
He's at MI6. Um, there's a new mission. We can't go back to Uncle Ben again. We can't do it. It's time to do Money Penny, and he doesn't have to throw the hat on the hat rack. But yeah, I'd like to see Money Penny introduced. I would like to see Q introduced. I would like to see more of Felix Leiter and, and that kind of development. I thought it would be interesting if you could somehow, and if you wanted to borrow some strings from Ian Fleming um, and still kind of draw some nuggets out of the stories, you still could. I mean, there's still Bond in New York would make a good setting. Mm-hmm. And if he could hook up with Felix Leiter and maybe some female agents in New York, I think it would be very interesting to show the dichotomy of the difference between a female agent and a male agent. And I'd like it if, like, if Leiter had only female agents mm. on his staff. Because he says male agents aren't effective anymore, James. It's only the females that can really get in there <laughs> you know, and really be effective. <laughs> and so I think that would be an interesting kind of angle to play in, in somewhat. Remember the last time that James Bond was in New York? Yeah. The honky's coming. <laughs> <laughs> Live and let die. Hey, honky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hildebrandt Rarity is about that fishing boat looking for that rare fish. So I guess you could kind of work that in, maybe, um, as a plot point. Bond catches the fish that the villain really wants, maybe, if you really wanted to kind of tie in some of all that. But that's a tough thing. I mean, they've really combed through as much Fleming as they could. You almost have to write a new adventure. Casino Royale had a huge crutch by having the Ian Fleming story. Right. to fall back on. Right. But we don't have those anymore now. And now we're being asked to write Bond 23. And that's a tough assignment after the 22, but well, the 21 before him. It shouldn't be tough after Quantum of Solace, <laughs> honestly. Right. I think they're going to have to go big. And I want to walk away with one or two of the most memorable Bond action sequences that I've seen. Well, they certainly have a willing participant and Daniel Craig. I mean, guy, did you hear how much he got beat up for this movie? I mean, he even lost a tip of a finger and all this kind of stuff. I just said, well, I'm go- this is the way I'm going to do it. I have to do it like this. I have to react to what this man is going through because I, I find that interesting. And that's because that's where I come from. That's the type of movies I enjoy. I'm going to apply that method. But there was no sort of deep sort of character analysis. I mean, I wish sort of there were, there had been. I could talk to you about it for hours, but I wanted to see him get sort of knocked back. I wanted to add the idea that he could go down. And I'm like, if his heart is into it, which we obviously know it is, then they need to go for it. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see, did they stick with the team? Did they stick with Haggis and Purvis and Wade? I mean, how many films have those guys done now? Some Brosnan, didn't Purvis they? and Wade have been on, I think, since World Is Not Enough, Die Another Day, Casino Royale, at least four films. Right. Well, we know they're capable. Yeah. We know yeah. they're capable and they've done a good job on some of the stuff. So, uh, yeah. But it's... maybe it's time to get some new blood. Maybe after writing four Bond films, maybe it's time to, to get some people that haven't written one before in there. Maybe. Um, because when you don't have the Fleming to fall back on, you're going to need some new ideas, some new energy, right. some new thoughts. And certainly, God, you don't need to hire that stunt team back at all. <laughs> well, I we'll mean, we see. Need to really, you need to really think. You need to hire some stuntmen that really want to push the boundaries. Because mm. I think 
of, of just some of the amazing stunt work that's been done in the Hong Kong films, both in karate and in gunplay right. and whatnot. But he never used this crappy shaky cam, quick cut filmmaking techniques. No, that's a that's to a cultural a lot of that kind of see, stuff. I think that's a cultural times twist that we're in. You know what I mean? I can see that just dissolving after a while. I think everyone's getting a little tired of it. I don't know why these directors are in love with it. It's like if Born Identity didn't didn't have that kind of stuff. It wasn't until it moved to Paul Greengrass. And if Paul Greengrass does it really well, doesn't mean that you can do it really well. You know what I mean? Yeah, it that's worked, the problem. It worked no, they great. don't have his artistry. Paul right. Greengrass is more than just a director. He's also an editor. He understands editing concepts. So right. he knows with the angles that he's getting, he's thinking of those kind of things. And they're pulled off in his films. Not in this one. To me, I really pin a lot of this on him. Now, obviously, the Broccoli's and, I mean, Barbara and... and, and Wilson let you know they they let a lot of this loose but it's almost like they said we want to bring you this director in now I know that Forster was a friend of Craig's and that Craig had suggested him uh, I know that they had offered it actually to Paul Haggis first and mm. then they'd also offered it to Roger Mitchell who had done what changing lanes a Venus that he did yeah it wasn't like within their choices of directors um, and, and I don't think Mark Forster was someone you would look at and go, yeah, that's the guy. He would not be the first German name I would pick. And the name that I would pick, I think that you would be quite pleased with, would have been Tom Tickler. Oh. That guy yeah. could make a hell of a you know damn what? good James Bond I movie. I think he could make a James Bond movie. You know who else could do a James Bond movie? was the guy who did B-13. Oh, Pierre Morel would be fantastic. I mean, he's got completely the right filmmaking sensibilities. For well, Bond. really, wasn't taken kind of like a Bond rogue f picture in a way. You know, it could have easily been a Bond rogue movie. He's just this assassin out to take people. Uh, uh, really, it could fit into that mold perfectly. But if you had had him on this, it would have been more like Taken and a lot less like what we got. Well, so, Pierre Morel, besides proving now to be a, a good director is just a great action choreographer director right. understands the geography of where to put the camera angles and how to edit a good action sequence and now i'd heard this rumor that they're talking danny boyle for the next one and i love danny boyle hmm. i think danny boyle is a fantastic director mm -hmm. and i think he can direct action well too um He's done a lot of the shaky stuff before, but a good choice, yeah, maybe, I don't know. He could definitely handle the actors. I think he's uh, he's got some action chops, obviously. I wouldn't hate that choice, but at the same time, again, it's not like I think bam, bam, instant you know, recognition with action and all that. So, Well, it's really going to depend on who their second unit director is, too, for that action. Much on how they hired Dan Bradley, Arthur Wooster used to shoot most of the old bond action anyway those mm -hmm. sequences what they're thinking is is they want to make sure they get a good director for all the other elements or that the actors have a good director right. to guide them along the way that's where i think you get thinking like a michael app dead you know in that kind of way or or mark forster i mean some of the wild horses were like lee tamahori and i guess roger spottiswood had just kind of proved himself enough of a craftsman but I thought he was an odd choice when they picked right. him to do Tomorrow Never Dies. It's really strange, this ring around the rosy of directors for the yeah. Bond movies, yeah. this lack of consistency that they've chosen to do is unique in the history of the series because there was something comforting about the consistency 
of the flow of bonds from, say, for your eyes only, Octopussy, View to a Kill, Living Daylights, and License to Kill. Although I will say that John Glenn stepped up, made a better film out of Living Daylights than he did A View to a Kill. Sure. So. Yeah, and that they you know, that they uh, didn't dump him after View to a Kill was uh, pretty amazing. And the films are just vastly different. Mm-hmm. And um, of, of quality. And it's just... Uh, Again, it's that curse that we introducing a new Bond thing. It's like great well, introduction. I think it's all bad follow. It's the material too. You give John Glenn decent material. He made good Bond movies. You give him a script like License to Kill. Sanchez. He still has to put the truck on two wheels, right? Oh. And the missile has to miss it. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if Mark Forster could have staged that scene any better. Yeah. You know, I'd be curious to how uh, Martin Campbell would have convinced me that was a good scene. He might have done it though. I wouldn't put it past Campbell <laughs> of figuring out the way to make it work. But yeah. uh, no, I mean, right now they need a, a permanent Martin Campbell on their staff is what they need. Well, and you know, it's interesting because we really don't have that much time. I mean, we're looking at 2011 for the next one. So they're going to have to be making some decisions right away, I think. The next installment is too important to just rush it off the assembly line. I think it needs to be one of the biggest and best bonds. And the potential is there. I know Craig has signed on at least for two more films. Right. Again, they just they need to get a whole staff of writers writing screenplays and getting all these different ideas. I can't believe there's not two or three great Bond scripts just sitting around right. waiting to be made. That would be a worthy investment on their end. I mean, there's got to be a bunch of writers out there that would love to take their a crack at writing a Bond movie. They've got some pretty strict rules on there. and It is a British-born thing. But I they mean, went to a German with Mark Forster, so I think all those rules are out. At the very What's least. What's Lee Tabahori? I think he's from New Zealand, which is British Commonwealth, so, yeah, you know, okay. it's it's still in the it's still in the, the kingdom, if you will. Right. So, uh, right. you know, and I don't I don't mind that. Just, you know, get the right guy on there. It's it's so hard because who could have figured when Goldeneye hit that Martin Campbell would be the man? And we talked about that as well in, in the previous right. show was, you know, how do you pick Martin Campbell? But he's certainly Boy, and you know what? I love it when a guy steps up and I've got my arms crossed and going, you're directing the Bond, you better show me. Right. And they show me. And they deliver. And I don't question why he's the best Bond director right now. Right. Because he is. Well, Mark Forster certainly has a slate of good films behind him. And so maybe they just went on the same kind of auspices that they did with uh, Martin Campbell and just said, well, this guy's got great films. Let's, it would be a perfect choice for him to do a Bond movie. But then, you know, it just didn't work out this time. So I don't know. All right, we got to wrap this up. This is this is ridiculous. We have we, we we the thing that's funny is that obviously we had to make this a little special because it's not going to fit right into our other Bond series, and and we needed to make it a little bit of a longer show. Of course, we do everything a lot longer than it should be. You know, an hour extra, if you will, the extended, extended, extended. Well, when the next Bond film comes out, we can adjust the show towards more in line. Exactly. <laughs> and, right, and we can make it shorter to fit into the thing and continue the Bond series. But, you know, at least right now you have the long version of our take on uh, Quantum of Solace uh, and that. Now, it, let's let's pull it back for a second and look at everything. Now, how would you drop this thing in? And we don't have to go through every category like we did before. But I know that I would definitely put this one in the bottom half of Bond films. I mean, I could even say bottom five. Yeah. You I know, mean, it's, 
In terms of disappointment, it's certainly... I've walked out of Bond movies disappointed, but I was thinking back to those Brosnan movies that at mm-hmm. least had a lot of elements in it that I still liked. Right. I mean, I didn't think Tomorrow Never Dies was, was fantastic, but it's got a couple of great little set pieces on it that I can still take away from it. The opening right. set piece, the car chase uh there's still some some moments in there that are good which one did he drive around in the tank in was that golden that was golden okay well yeah. i like golden but i mean yeah moments yeah. like that it's like things that you remember there really is nothing to take away from this film Even, I just, yeah i don't take anything out of quantum yeah, at all nothing there's no set piece I wouldn't, that you can I, it's walk like away. if i wanted to take one scene out of this to show in a bond retrospective of some of the best action scenes in Bond. What scene am I going to take out of Quantum of Solace? Right. Well, even even poignant scenes like the shower scene in Casino Royale or yeah. like, I, like I said, the torture scene in Casino Royale. There's nothing here that you can pull away and say, this is a special Bond moment. There's nothing. And that's what hurts is that just like, give us at least one shining moment. Yet they still sank 200 million dollars into this. IMDb even even suggests that it could be as high as 225. I mean, wow. my god, they were just burning money. I mean, they make skyscrapers for less than that. And then here's this movie uh-huh. that, you know, even for old James Bond fans like us, it's going to be like, "Oh god, unless that's in a pack, how am I going to buy that?" It's like I want to have all the bonds, but you're telling me I need to go buy that and add it to my shelf. Ugh. And Right now, I would I would like to draw up a, a fundraiser of let's just let's earn enough money to pay Stuart Baird to re-edit the movie. <laughs> I don't know what his salary is if it's you know five hundred thousand, eight hundred thousand, whatever he charges to edit a movie. But I'd be happy just take him into the edit bay, give him all the raw footage, and just give me a quantum of solace re-edit because then I think maybe I could have a film that might be watchable. And all the other lameness of the of the movie might not be as bad if I could at least sit back and enjoy some of the sequences. But I can't even do right. that on top of the lame the plot. The Opera House story was the only thing that presented itself as a moment that we might be able to take away. And then it got bungled. Yeah, I agree. You know? they, they could have rode in a better car chase. They just didn't have anything to do, yeah. anything exciting in that car chase. Yeah. That should have um, been... Remember when we saw War of the Worlds, Spielberg's thing, and we didn't like it, but we remember that when they were trying to get away in the car and the camera was doing that 360 (laughs) around it? I remember that. That was cool because that was kind of innovative. Imagine if that opening car chase was all like one long take. Yep. You know, they used the CGI, you know, camera that just kind of moved around to where you you were constantly as a voyeur in some ways or... You know, they somehow used technology in a way that was innovative that you hadn't seen before. That's again, I think that's the heart and history of what the Bond movies. It's it was the barometer everybody aimed for, right? In the industry, and now Bond has has just like given up. It seems to me. Well, and it's sad considering the promise that we saw in Casino Royale and how much we love Daniel Craig in this role. It's like, yeah. don't let us fall I back. I want to see him succeed as Bond. Well, see, I want him- and that's the problem is that we don't want to get back into another Pierce Brosnan cycle here where you make one great film and the rest are garbage when you have someone who is so fantastic for the role. I mean, that's something we agreed on as well is that we always liked Brosnan. But it's mm-hmm. just the material never met what he brought to the thing. You know, at least, you know, in everything except for Goldeneye. And so... 
God, let's please not go down that route again. Because if we have another shitty after this, it's, that's going to be hard not to worry about. It's like, oh, God, we're going to go down this road again? Mm-hmm. Oh, I hope not. So anyways, ugh, we've beat it down to... to we beat the dog again. We're, have we found our quantum of solace? <laughs> not on this film. We were so beaming and excited and joyous when it came to uh, Casino Royale. Here we are with our head hanging low. I went to the midnight show. I mean, I was I was ready for this Bond film, just like I was ready for Indiana Jones. And I'll be damned if I am not just a target in an alley to get mugged for these films. <laughs> right? Indy comes at me. Puts the shiv right in me. Yes. Bond follows right after. Turns the shiv. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> These franchises that I used to count on delivering can't even do it anymore. I was just so ready to fall in love with Bond all over again. and I didn't have a desire to go out and see the film again in the theater. I only saw it once. Now, let me ask you. We'll end on this question. Is this a, is this a never happened? No, it's canon. Yeah. It, and that's the thing is I'm a canon guy when it comes right, to Bond. Right. Um, I'll, I'll I'll never happen, never say never it again. That's easy. Right. And, you know, the other non-canon Casino Royale. But, yeah, even Diamonds Are Forever happened. How kind of you, Mr. Kid. You know, they yeah. all happened, unfortunately, unfortunately for others. Well, but, you know, yeah, at, the, canon. at the very least, he found the guy who tricked Vesper. And got him and brought him down, and saved yeah. another girl in and saved another girl before she went through the same fate. So at least that occurred in the movie, and I can walk away with that ending from that. That's the ending from Casino Royale right there. That that closes. But it's not it as up. good an ending as Casino Royale. Casino Royale still had a better ending. I mean, come on, coming up, shooting white, and walking up to him, oh, giving the name. There's no I mean, doubt. Oh, but in, they nailed it. They just nailed. Oh, that it. was the best. But in such a way that I think it, they probably shouldn't have done the sequel idea. Uh. It was so contained. Maybe it was time just to open up with, you know, the new gun barrel and let's go off on another adventure. That's not this story. But we can't do that now. That's revisionist. This is what happened. They tried it. It's like, hey, we've never done this before. Right. They tried it, and guess what? It didn't work. Yeah, didn't for me work. at least, it made a lot of money. It worked in terms of they got they got through it and they didn't fail and they didn't do something that killed the series, which I guess is good. Which there's always the fear of they could make a movie so bad it kills the whole series. That just means it's a placeholder, right? It just it's like yeah. oh we got through a film and didn't yeah. kill the whole series. It's like yeah. So I mean the last film you'd have to look at that didn't really gross well would be License to Kill. Yeah, definitely. All the others have been outgrossing each other along the way, or grossing pretty. People have pr- said over and over again that they still want James Bond, and there's no question. Quantum of Solace proved that again. Even if it was a bounce off of Casino Royale, people want their James Bond. So it will continue. We just have to hope that people like us can get what we got, you know, something in the same ballpark of Casino Royale. I didn't expect that it would be that good, but. At the very least, something. So, so I don't know. That's it. It's done. You're right. It's canon. We have to accept it. And we're on Hollywood Saloon, back in the world of James Bond. This man and I have some unfinished business. Bond? I need you back. 
I never left. From Russia. Bond. With love. James Bond. Gold finger. Thunderbolt. My name's Bond. James Bond. Diamonds are forever. My name's Bond. James Bond. James Bond. James Bond. James Bond. Bond. James Bond. You're listening, You're listening to the Hollywood Saloon. Saloon. Saloon.